0: Namaste, motherfuckers, and welcome to Tantric Conversation, episode number 61, Eric Larson. I am your host, Curtis Payne, and uh, forgive me, for I have not kept my word. I cannot get these things out once a week. There's just too much going on. I am now having to travel from my job, and I'm busy. But you know what? That's not really what it is. I just uh, just don't feel like it sometimes, even though I, I like doing the actual interviews and conversations, not interviews, I like doing them, I like talking to people and then recording it, for some reason this part where I sit down and I record the intro and I post it, I mean it probably takes about a half an hour but it is like pulling teeth for me to get myself to sit down and do it. And it, like, I mean, I really, I don't have to make any kind of real time, but yet, here I go, I procrastinate and I procrastinate, and then two weeks go by and I haven't posted. So, sorry about that. But here we are, we, they're here, it doesn't really matter, they're not time sensitive, and, uh, you know, they're just piling up and archiving on iTunes and on the space. You can listen to them whenever you want, you can do whatever you want, whenever you want. I'm going to tell you what to do, but I keep saying I'm going to get these out every week and then I'm not doing it, so I want you to know that I know that, I recognize that and if anybody cares I'm sorry so um, it's fucking gotten cold here it's winter time, I'm living in a big drafty house and it's really only comfortable on the second floor, no matter what I do I cannot stop that flow of air, nature abhors a vacuum and uh, it wants to just fly through this house and up through the attic and out into space. And uh, I have two temperate zones, the second floor and the first floor. And when you get onto the first floor, you have to be dressed like you're going outside. can't be going barefoot, get arthritis in your toes, walk around the kitchen floor. It's bogus. Yeah, so I am uh, excited. I I really enjoyed this uh, conversation with Eric. I've always really liked... Eric a lot, and um, I've encountered him a lot of different ways, I mean, there was, my role as a, as a music reviewer for Punchline, and I, I really gave a shitty review to River City Revival, the first, I think it was the first, maybe it was the second, Alabama Thunder Pussy record, and that's what Eric Larson's from, in case you don't know, he was in Avail, he was in Alabama Thunder Pussy, he's now in a band called Parasitic, even, and many others, he's been um, a music fixture contributor artist. Um, in Richmond for 20 years, something like that, touring musician, he's also been a guy that forced the door at bars where I used to drink, and we would always end up hanging out, I would talk to him at the door, or we would talk at the bar, and he was one of those people, the way I remember him, is always very tolerant for my uh, verbal diarrhea, and all of my fucking resentments and opinions and all of this shit that seemed to attend my uh, drinking, especially in the later days, I just had something to say about everything and it was usually negative and usually like how this, all of this stuff wasn't cool and why wasn't it cool and how come it couldn't be the way I wanted it to be and why couldn't this band be like this and that band be like that and whatever. And he was always a good, very patient conversationalist for that kind of thing. And if memory serves, we get into talking a lot about the the various pigeonholes and corners that you can decide to paint yourself into because of who you are. Decide that you identify with and who you relate to and you can get real tribal about i don't think we use that word but it, it's it sums it up well you get real tribal about music and about clothes and about tattoos and about hair and all of these things and and uh and decide that's the only thing and um that works and then anybody who's not doing that's not cool or is not your people or whatever and you know i'm no longer interested in that and for me it It started with being, well, you know, I had painted myself so much into a corner with everything that I didn't like. It was a very little left that I did like, and I found myself alone in that tribe, tribe of one. Um, And, you know, a lot of this, these podcasts is me, not a lot of them, I don't know, a fair, fair amount of them is me talking to people that I never even really got to know. I never even got a fair shake. They were just shadows. They were just characters to me out there in Richmond. Maybe my people, maybe not my people. And uh, since I've been back here, partly because of the trajectory I've been on with, you know, recovery, not drinking, all that kind of stuff, and, and, you know, applying myself to some kind of spiritual growth, philosophical growth, whatever, I'm just, you know, I came back to Richmond with new eyes on Richmond and new eyes on the people here who I had taken for granted. So I like to sit down and talk to people and find out about them. I also like to find out about people I had no context for previously, just new people in Richmond, but... Really learn a lot from sitting down with people that I thought I knew, and it just it just it expands and expands, and that's where I'm at. I'm expansive. I'm not exclusive anymore. I like you know taking in more and more stuff, finding more and more things to have in common with more and more people. Um, I don't really you know I don't have the problem with shit I used to have with being you know this being mainstream or that being frat boy or whatever. I you know I'd, I'd rather find a reason and an excuse to relate to people rather than find a reason not to. And, uh, you know, I don't know. That's a, that's a thing that I think was a, was thematic in our conversation. I certainly, all of those guys, <clears throat> I just never knew how much there was to like about a lot of the dudes in a veil. Um, I just kind of saw them as a bunch of tough guys, and, and I didn't really like tough guys. I liked, you know, um, intellectual... Uh, mouthy people like myself um, back in the day and tough guys usually don't like mouthy people so we usually didn't get along but um, I'm realizing now that I I'm still pretty mouthy but not in the same way um, that I take some time and get to know these people I have so much more in common with them and I, I like them and you know I can appreciate them now and I wish I had taken the time to appreciate more of what was going on in this town over the last 20 years when I was in and out of it um, instead of having that critic's eye on it, I was wish I had just kind of gone to see more stuff that I didn't take in um for whatever resentment was going on with me or whatever judgment was going on with me so if you're if, if you're listening to this and you're that kind of person, I urge you to knock it the fuck off. you know the people on the stage don't have to look like you to be playing music that you might like you know there's nobody judging there's no there's no like police that are gonna come around and lock you up for liking music that doesn't fit your clothes that you're wearing. You know, it's break that down, let that shit go and open up to all the possibilities. Um yeah. Thank you, Dr. Phil. Um <clears throat> so without any further ado, let's get on into me and Eric talking about futons. I know people who a can't a lot, f- lot of people in Texas could fit yeah. up your stairs. What well, I can't fit any furniture up those stairs. Either. I was
1: gonna say, looking at this bed, like how the well, obviously you take it apart, but like right. how the fuck do you get that? Or a mattress? How would you get a mattress that fit this up here? Like a
0: mattress a, will just fit vertically up the stairs. A, uh, I can get a queen size mattress up there. I can get. There are things that just narrowly fit in the margin, and certain things like a couch. If you can't take the feet off the couch, it's not coming up here.
1: That makes sense. Hence the futon.
0: Uh, right. And that futon is just a, um, a salvage kind of a thing. Like somebody moved out and and left it, and it really sucks. Like I think <laughs> the futon is probably one of the worst <laughs> inventions ever because I've never been on a comfortable one.
1: Yeah, we had one for our, our guest room when we first got our house, the new house. <laughs> Thought it was an awesome idea, and you know, because we'd have bands stay there all the time, and right. realize that it's kind of a total scam by mm-hmm. Target. Or stores of that ill, yeah.
2: For Ikea. to like,
1: you know, college crap. Like, hey, your kid's going away and he wants just a kind of a party flop house. Right. We don't need a bed, we don't right. want have a couch, we'll have one of the same thing and it <laughs> doesn't work really. Doesn't it's not comfortable for either of those things. No, it
0: isn't. I mean it's really it's beyond not comfortable, it's it almost seems intentionally painful or torturous. Mm-hmm. Like do you think they could do better with the wooden slats that go across those things that, that...
1: we we had to kinda of, like I'm trying to think. It's kind of—it was kind of like a beach chair in a way, you know, like some of those beach chairs you have to like overextend them to click yeah, them. Yeah,
0: that's how that one is. Yeah, and yeah. it like
1: clicks into place, and then you—if yeah. you have to click it all the way up to get it to go all the way down. Yeah, and it was—it would get stuck. And right. We, I have a friend of mine. This guy John Hopkins, who he's like six five, six six, probably pushing three hundred pounds. He's a—he's a large man. Most people call him Big John for mm-hmm. that reason, and he just got unlucky with that thing (laughs) we ended up getting a trundle bed finally for the for the guest room and um that works a lot better for
0: so ladies and gentlemen we were talking about the relative merits or lack thereof of futons yeah eric larson yeah
1: not what i thought we'd be talking about
0: (laughs) you never know what's gonna happen you turn on the mics you know yeah every so often after i do these i think you know what maybe i will start like Writing something down.
1: Well, I was you know? I, I was thinking about it on the way up because you know I was telling the parasitic guys they're like, what do you got going on? It's like I'm gonna go do a podcast with Curtis Payne and uh, they're like, what that what what's that? What are you what you know? Because they're thinking like, what are you gonna just play music and talk over it or something? I'm like, I don't really know. He just said we were just gonna talk. Yeah. But uh, I was like, you know, maybe it'll end up being like a Nardwar interview or maybe it'll be just like. Here's a topic like fucking uh, Linda Richman or something and you know, coffee talk.
0: I don't yeah, know. <laughs> you know, there are they're all of these other organized or shtick or, you know, like whatever. But then there's a ton of them that are just like this where people turn on mics and start talking. And I listen to a whole lot of those and I, I got really addicted to the chaotic aspect of it. You know, mm-hmm. not addicted, but that's like my favorite thing about anything creative is the shit that happens when you just say like, I'm going to start right now and like, we're just, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I mean, it's, it's allowing like whatever the hell, like, you know, there's something that has a life of its own in any interaction between two or more people, hmm. you know? And like, I'm really interested in that. Like that's when I, I didn't really know about it until I started playing music and, and it was all that I could do. Cause I didn't know how to play music. You know, mm-hmm. I just like some guys that I knew in New York were like, We're going to one of these practice spaces, you can come. And I'm like, Yeah, but I don't play and they're like, Don't worry about it, here. Figure it out. Take this guitar, take these drums and then I just started but even when the least when I was doing the least amount of shit where I was playing like two chords or playing one beat on the drums or whatever, that shit would start to happen in the room or it start to sound like something. Mm-hmm. And like not you know, it's and there's nothing wrong with like having learned an instrument and gotten really good at it. And then you go in and you know exactly what's going to happen. You're going to play this song. Everybody's going to play the, their part and you're going to have that. That's good too. But the, the fact that something can happen when you don't have any plan and you're just going in there to see what happens, that, it, that something cool happens then too mm-hmm. is really interesting to good. me. Well, yeah.
1: With instruments in that, in that respect, I think that also depends on to some extent, the skill level mm-hmm. because, uh, I mean, I know personally I can jam all day long on the drums because it's instinctual, but I have no fucking clue how to jam on guitar because I don't know scales or even names of the notes or anything, and Mm -hmm. I always have played in a drop tuning, so, you know, just to show up and someone hand me a guitar and be like, yeah, we're going to do this, it's in G. I'd be like, I have no fucking clue what you're talking about. What's the root note? Okay, I could put my finger there and just chug for a while, and then that would be it. Well, that's
0: not that far from,
1: yeah, you know. But it's, you know, it's like... My point is, is that there's good jam
0: sessions, then there's the awkward sure. ones. Sure, <laughs> and, and there've been plenty of these <laughs> that are awkward, mm. and like, you know, or one person just like, I, and sometimes it's me, it's like just is dominating the thing, And like it's not a jam, it's like. Well, what's been you the?
1: Know, you don't have to name names if you don't, I don't want do to. Mine okay, then who's been the most difficult person well it's not
0: to? usually the people it 's usually me like hmm. 'cause it, and the same holds true for when i 'm playing music it's like you know you can kind of be feeling it and be in the zone and be comfortable right. and and I think it's really a matter of being self conscious or not self conscious you know and letting it happen and then other times feeling so i Carol Pearsall, who is a theater person in Richmond who is very like accomplished, awesome. You know, actress so, in her own right, a director, a producer. She's been, she started the Firehouse theater project here. Right. Um, she's doing Fifth Wall now. Really, really like awesome person, but like I felt extremely awkward trying to talk to her. Did you
1: feel starstruck or something? Or no, it,
0: just, just, just like, how I was at that moment, hmm. you know? And she is a, like, you know, a grown up. Even though I'm a grown up, she seems like more of a grown up. Yeah, I think. He, you know?
1: My father said to me when he was around the age that I am now, I mean, I'm 42 and, uh, we were talking about age and he's like, he's like, I don't know what you're talking about. I still feel like I'm 22 years old. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, but you're not old, man. <laughs> <You> <laughs> right. know, I think, I think most people uh, look in like, the mirror, you know, a mental age that they kind of right. stay at. Maybe not. I and mean, that's not a maturity level. That's just kind of like, you don't think yeah. of yourself as an old person. Right. You know, necessarily, unless, you know, you have terrible health issues and then you're like, ah, oh, my body sucks. It hates me. Yeah. It. You know, but, so I got
0: gray at my temples, but I think of myself as being about 19 or 20, you know. And, <laughs> and still like, looking good, still
1: and, looking then, good.
0: <laughs> and then I'm talking to somebody who's, you know, married and has kids mm-hmm. and like lives in a house, and Boom. and they're on some different plane from me. And I don't really intellectually believe that, but that's just what took over for me in that moment. I think, I
1: think it, just, it just that and. and I have issues with that as well in terms of what I think you're getting at, which is like, you know, people who have families or they they end up moving into a different kind of like their life priorities change and shift. And that does Mm -hmm. happen. But when it becomes like, okay, that was then, this is now. Mm -hmm. That to me is weird, Mm -hmm. you know, and not because... Because I'm not really in an active band right now. I mean, Parasynic starting to do some stuff again. So
0: that's the name of the project you're doing on? Yeah.
1: Yeah, we've got two records out.
0: We'll come back to that and finish sure. your point. Uh,
1: my point is just that I don't f- feel like I interact with people differently just because I have a family. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if anything, I'll, I'll prioritize and make it clear to people that are like, you know, ahead of time, you know. So it's like, yeah, I'd love to come see you, but I can't because... I got my boy after school and we've got soccer practice and all this, but maybe I could catch up with you earlier in the day, you know, or Mm -hmm. something like that. But it's not like I diss somebody or just completely avoid the conversation because I don't want to have that conversation. Yeah. you know, It's it's like you just be honest with people about your life and everything should
0: be cool. Yeah, well, that is, and and, and I mean, that is a goal of this kind of thing is that I have come to think of, you know heavily edited or orchestrated kinds of shows like this is being dishonest even though really they're they're just somebody putting some attention into the craft you know and wanting it to be good sure but they also want to look good you know they yeah, also sure. want to appear to know what they're doing they want to sound good they want to display mastery and i want to show all the shit that actually goes into making something work you know mm. <laughs> like that you know, I can sit there afterwards and edit this into something that makes me look like you know a badass interviewer or something like that, or I could even have that plan in the beginning, but I'm much more interested in like <clears throat> putting it out there that like so much of doing anything at all like taking the effort is is not being good at it and fucking it up and you know learning as you go and all of that so and that's what I got out of listening to these other podcasts, like especially mark maron's podcast i don't know if you ever
1: Cool. I don't i have i've I've heard him on the radio with interviews and I've seen his show like twice and
0: the t v show that yeah, yeah. And
1: Aaron, like I, and I do enjoy his comedy, but I have to take it in doses because it is so i don't know what's the word is it like I don't know if sardonic's the right word but
0: angry but, cynical like <laughs> yeah he's
1: just you know it's just like he's kind of a downer man yeah, you know? and like like i mean i'm I'm kind of misanthropic myself, but like I'm not.
0: I don't well, he's want to not,
1: constantly have it in my face. Like, right.
0: So, uh, like, if you're if you're only listening to him, you know sure. that you might get that. But when he's got people on, you know, he's like constantly. I mean, it, it's way less intense now. Well, but I've when heard people starting,
1: like basically be like, "No, you're an idiot. You're an asshole." Like, well, There's <laughs> that.
0: But there's also like he can really because he understands what it feels like to be sort of in a panicky state of insecurity and yeah, and neurosis totally. that he really he relates to when people are talking about that stuff and mm-hmm. he, he needs to relate to that. He needs to so kind of self feel better. Yes. And then he also puts them at ease. And then, and so what I kept hearing was like, wow, Like, when I'm in my own head all the time thinking I'm a piece of shit or, like, not good enough or I've fucked up my life or whatever, and then I listen to these people who are actually really successful and find out that they feel that way a lot of times. You know, people who have a career, you know, that are out there, like, getting paid to do the thing they love, and then they still go around with that voice in their head. I was like, wow, you know, that – I'm. Uh, a lot of this stuff that is pain in people's lives Is just the isolation That you don't hear how other people actually feel you just hearing what they tell you you know, sure. What they want you to hear The image they're putting out there right. So in those conversations There got to be a lot of I got to hear a lot of really candid stuff And he gets people candid Because he's making such He's just laying it all out there You know, He's not trying to gussy it up Or pretty it up or whatever So then they start dropping their guard And they start being real and so that, that's really cool. But also hearing so many writers of whether they're musical writers or comedy writers or play, you know, screenwriters, whatever, talking about that process that it involves a lot of agonizing, like, you know, trial and error. Especially comedians who they write their shit and they're like, this is pretty good and then they go say it in front of people and they find out it isn't good because they're standing in right. front of them <laughs> and nobody's <laughs> and laughing. Like, yeah. Mm. And and then they have to have the balls to like go back and work on that. And like if they can do that, then I can do these other things that I've, you know, been, I don't know, hesitant to do because of take of rejection or whatever so that's i'm trying to continue that spirit in doing this you know is that richmond's always felt to me like a place that people go around really needing to project an image and having a hard time being real you know and they're real with their close friends Mm. but then you know everybody's sort of looking askance at the people who over here who are not quite their tribe you know and this is sort of a small town to even have that attitude
1: yeah that's that's interesting i I can see that i wouldn't have Put it quite that way like I've I always felt that the town was at least from from my artistic background coming from music it was a great place to be because there didn't feel like band competition because everyone was in a band so you weren't like right. there wasn't like a cool this about you because you're in a band because yeah hey great so am I fuck off mm-hmm. you know but with the clickishness that you that you're saying like I have noticed that a little bit more as of late like maybe the last eight years just because the scene has become so broad mm-hmm. as the city has grown and the population has grown and the influx of, you know, new ideas to people who are, you know, 10, 15 years removed from VCU or whatnot. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, shit. The, 20. I'm, when I was fucking... When I went to VCU, it was like, email was brand new. Like, yeah. brand fucking new, and you could do it at the library. Yeah. You know, and... Cool. Now it's just like it's commonplace.
0: Mm-hmm. It's on your People phone.
1: Do it with their fucking sunglasses, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. but it's like with that kind of shit, new ideas come in and different perspectives on things. And I guess I, I, I can see that where it does have that element to it.
0: You I know, I wasn't know. so like I didn't get to but be aware. It
1: sucks, by right? The way. You know, that sucks. But
0: and, and, and you know, there's a lot of different ways, and I'm constantly. A part of how I try to live now is constantly trying to switch my perspective on something instead of getting stuck and having a problem
2: Mm. with
0: something. Because if I do have a problem with it, that means I'm going around with a problem in me and, like, I feel uncomfortable. And then that, that creates me seeing more problems and more shit to have a problem with and being basically resentful and, you know, negative and angry. and and that isn't a comfortable place to be and I can't be, you know, constructive and I can't be successful if I'm going around like that all the time. But I, as you know, you knew me while I spent most Mm -hmm. of my time, you know, really feeding that, you know, and being that way and being, you know, in people's faces that way. And, um,
1: I always took that with, with you. Like, I mean, I don't know how, what your listening base is for this, but how many people, how many people know you personally?
0: Oh, they know. But, uh,
1: I mean, when I met you, it was, it was just working the door at the hole in the wall, and you know. So I had, there were regulars there, like walk-up regulars every night. People who would like Nathan, the painter Nathan. He would, he would stroll mm-hmm. up. Nathan
0: just, Motley. You know, doing his yeah.
1: strut that he does.
0: Mm-hmm. Pimping up. And
1: he'd come in and uh, he'd have a couple beers, and then he'd strut somewhere else. But we always charged at hole in the wall because it was the people who worked there, whether it was the, myself, the doorman, or the kitchen, or the people slinging beers, everyone was in a band and would tour. So everyone was like, man, just, you know, it's like two, three bucks most of the time. Five
2: bucks. Yeah. Five
1: bucks at the most. Like when Lazy King would play or something, it would be five bucks and we would overpack it, you know? Right. But I remember you showed up one day and you were kind of lit and, um, like you'd already had enough. Not enough. Definitely not Plenty enough. Plenty, though. But you had, you had enough to be happy, you know? And, um, you kind of threw some attitude at me because I was trying to charge, I think it was like four bucks. And I was like, I didn't care. I was a dick right back to you, <laughs> yeah. you know? And, but after the fact when you came in and I think it, maybe it hit you like, Oh, right. The money is going directly to these people that I came to see anyway. Mm-hmm. Cause you knew how that place worked. Yeah. And, um, you came up to me after me and you're like, Hey man, sorry, I wasn't trying to be a dick or anything. I just, you know, you know, <laughs> and I, and I was like, "It's cool, man. Everyone pays here." I was like, "That's what I do." And you're like, "That's cool, man. That's cool." But then after that, you know, and I'd see everything was, you know, I, I never got the the impression like, cause some people took issue with you in town because you were a writer and you're very vocal and opinionated about stuff. And a lot of it was justified telling someone they sucked because mm-hmm. they sucked. Doesn't mean quit what you're doing. Just means get better at it. Right. <laughs> and even if it's being bad get better at being bad because it obviously wasn't pushing the right buttons but um you know I I don't know I I don't like the bad amount of people you know unless they deserve it and I don't ever felt like you ever really deserved yeah that much shit talked on you if you felt like that happened a lot I never felt like it but no you know I
0: I feel like anything anybody had to say about me behind my back or to my face was deserved or was like I was making myself available for that you know because I was if I was going to write record reviews then I was putting it out there. I did. I felt like also, I had just come back from New York and people were so harsh there, you know, about music, about, yeah. or anything. It really dismissive. I mean, initially, immediately they would, you know, and, and I, I, who, who am I to do this? But I thought, well, maybe we'll have rock criticism in the local paper in Richmond be like it is up there, like in the New York press. Yeah. And like level that kind of shit at people. And even if they, they don't do anything about it because it's just my opinion. They would get used to that, you know.
1: People never get so, used to that here, though, <laughs> and, you know, because they'll find you, right? And they'll be like, who's who? Fucking wrote this? Kurtz Payne wrote this? Where's he at? Where's he at? And then, you know, especially nowadays with fucking texting and everything, people could find where you are. That motherfucker will travel across the fan or across town, find you yeah. sitting down at a bar, and walk up and be like, "Hey, man, what's up?" get you a bear. What the fuck is up with this, with this shit that you wrote? And that did happen.
0: Yeah. It did happen. And Mark, I remember Mark Morton get, and I mean, I wrote, I wrote, burned the Priest review, and I really, they shouldn't have given me that record because I did not listen to that kind of metal, and I didn't really get it, hmm. you know, at that time. But and I basically just kind of said that, you know, um, I actually, I think I said it was kind of like reggae, like it all sounds the same unless you're really into it, and then you can tell the difference, you know. <laughs> <Wow>. and, <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think that's awesome you said that, but, but, but
2: <laughs> the man, thing is you... I
0: fucking do love Lamb of God now. Like I mean mm-hmm. I really like that shit. Like I think it's really good and um I if I could take I would have put more effort into that review now, I think, than I did then. But then they somebody said, like, here, will you do this and you know, I just, I was dismissive of those guys and of that. And, you know, Mark came up to me one time in a bar and he was just like, What do you want, man? Like, what are you looking for? Like, don't you get it? You know, or something like that. And, you have um, to also
1: put it in context, too, because of what this town, especially when we're talking about that time period where there was a pretty good up and coming heavy music scene, whether it was, you know, metal or sludge or whatever stone or rock or mm-hmm. whatever you want to call heavy stuff. So everyone was kind of coming up and everyone was trying to be supportive of each other, you know, and, and then here you come and going now thumb in your eye. <laughs> right. So that's, I think that's where Mark was coming from. which are just like, what's your problem, man? Like, yeah. Why you got to be a naysayer? Why not help everybody to get better as opposed to like stomp it down? But the problem too, though, at that time was, you know, you kind of came out of nowhere
0: yeah, even though I was from even, here, I even been, though you're
1: you are born and raised locally, right. right? I've been so, gone
0: for four years and I just came back yeah, with but that four shit. years is yeah. an eternity
1: mm-hmm. when you're in a college town, mm-hmm. especially in the early 2000s when like
2: yeah,
1: that shit just kind of went boom, yeah. And you had everyone from Burn the Priest changing the name to Lamb of God to mm-hmm. all of a sudden becoming rock stars, you know, to the band I was involved with, to fucking throttle rod, to fucking RPG coming up, and like you know,
2: mm-hmm.
1: or even you know bands who are still kicking who are still kicking like saint diablo oh yeah they still play who's in that band i never really personally knew any of those dudes i met tito once the singer i think his name's tito and i think rob maybe the bass player who used to have ram's horns shaved in his head
0: i remember that band existing but you know what what got us on this this track is that i mean i guess nobody's every ever one way all the time because as you mentioned i remember yeah what my motivations were at different times um that when i first came back from new york i had been working in indie rock up there and like you know i'd come in there and play a record i liked you know and they would come back there and mercilessly trash the record and trash me for listening to it (laughs) but it was just what you did it's like it's like that john cusack and high fidelity shit like that's All of the guys that worked at Matador came from there. They all had worked at record stores, and they had been that guy at the record store. Retail. Every single person. Yeah, and and not just retail, but, like, that super esoteric, like, I – it's only good if it's ridiculously obscure. They only printed, you know, a thousand copies of this, or I'm the only one. There's this whole, you know, there's this whole thing to that. Like, there's a whole – it's – it, it's you get involved in it and you start trying to compete or be in that, and it's kind of a hard skill to lose. And I did initially for a little while, I kind of went into it. I was like, you know, being got Stockholm syndrome and started being like that about music. And I'd never been like that about music. I was, I mean, I was like, I know it's cool, and you guys don't know what's cool, but I mean, it really had to be a wide. You know, golf, like, like, you know about Jesus Lizard and the Melvins and stuff, or you listen to the Grateful Dead and that crap or whatever, like the people out in the West End. There was a much more inclusive, like, range of music you could be in, in Richmond. I got to New York and it was like, you narrow it, narrow it, narrow it down to this thing. And so I was in that mindset when I came back here. Um, and then gradually I got into this thing that was very quixotic. Like, I turned into, like, only the only thing that's really cool is 70s rock and roll or things with that spirit and like i got kind of obsessed with like and it really was like tilting at windmills it was a delusional state of thinking like i wanted to live in what that was, world was your, i
1: mean your band was kind of trying to go for that
0: yeah they everybody was going for different things in that band yeah it seemed,
1: it seemed like rick was trying to bring like like the kind of southern fuck you Annie scene redneck element to mm-hmm. richmond and randy was Grabbing hold onto that Jeff Clayton thing, but the thing is, is like Rich was just like, yeah, dude, whatever, fucking, fucking Mud Helmet did this shit ten years ago, you know.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, nice guys, people came to see their bands. Assholes, mm-hmm. people did not come to see their bands, and there's even more of that, you know. Like we, well, whatever. There, everybody in that band was doing something different, and we were all mm-hmm. fighting each other too, you know. And yeah, that was just I mean, a I got, really I chaotic, got that. There was
1: definitely like y'all came together to do the thing but separately you didn't hang out
0: i had a totally different idea what i wanted me and randy to do mm-hmm. and randy had an idea what he wanted to do and then he started stocking the band with people that he already knew and he brings rick up from charlotte, charlotte right and rick you know, was my neighbor that's right
1: yeah he lived right he lived a block of down for me and the, they didn't live there all that long like they moved in and moved out
0: yeah, in and the then time they,
1: period I was I was in there.
0: In they picked a bunch of like yeah they were over in that over near Parker Street when you were over there. Like I was in, in Fulton
1: Hill, in Fulton When Hill. they lived
0: near you it was then.
1: Yeah, they lived in, they lived on the corner of uh, Salem and uh, uh wasn't Winchell. It was the next one. Well, world.
0: fuck my musical history here. <laughs> like, it's it illustrious <laughs> as it is. Like my one band in Richmond, I think. Um When did you come to Richmond? why when 1990 did you come here with like no i came here um in
1: 1990 to go to vcu because basically i didn't know what the fuck i wanted to do Mm -hmm. but i knew i didn't want to stay at home
0: and what was home
1: home was Falls church virginia oh yeah but i only lived there like i guess technically for like 10 years i mean i came from outside atlanta that's where i was born oh yeah and my dad you know it was the 80s my dad got my dad got a job in the late 70s i want to say maybe 78 79 we moved up from atlanta just in time for the fucking huge snowstorm that hit and like shut down dc It was like the week we moved uh-huh we had never to walk. seen we snow had, before i had never seen snow before man i was a little kid It was like my sister's three years older than me and my little brother's a year and a half younger than me and i remember we had no food so we lived like if anyone's familiar with Falls Church, it was uh, uh, Seven Corners. Mm-hmm. So we lived up right there, and we had to walk to the grocery store in the fucking two feet of snow. And For a little kid, you know, it's up to your fucking chest. Yeah, you're like, yeah. this is great. My dad's like, this fucking, I moved away from New York to get away from this bullshit, and I went back to, you know, anyway. I, so so your you, dad
0: originally came from New York? Yeah, my whole
1: family are Yankees except for me and my brother. Oh, brothers. really? Yeah, me and my brother were born in Georgia thankfully
0: so what was the game your dad was in that
1: he was a mortgage banker oh really awesome time to be in the savings and loan industry in the 80s
0: yeah right when you get It down. was right
1: <laughs>
2: no
0: it wasn't didn't hear, okay not well, i don't i don't remember i remember the 80s being like that wall street was crazy and people the snl, were, you know. the
1: SNL fucking tank it was oh, basically financial yeah. disaster and and like so <laughs> my dad was unemployed like newly divorced my parents split newly divorced he had won custody um primary custody we did the whole like you know every other weekend at my mom's house and mm-hmm. during the week go to her house after school and then go back home to sleep kind of shit so my dad was like basically unemployed throughout the entire 80s while he's wow. trying to raise three kids he put together so many fucking fly by night businesses you know trying to still do what his trade was and then he finally figured out like this is bullshit I'm out of here and he started doing consulting or something in the mm-hmm. 90s and, and he's been on a, a better. And Atlanta
0: point. had, so he went down there to do financial stuff and then he got up to do. Yeah, this, yeah.
1: incidentally, I, I'm fortunate to have been born in Atlanta because the other option, my dad got two job offers. Um, you know, he was newly out of uh, the military, newly out of Vietnam when my mother was pregnant with me. And um, he got two job offers. One was in Atlanta. And one was in Gulfport, Mississippi. Now, the job offer in Atlanta was a little more modest, but, you know, it was a major city.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And they were coming from New York. They lived, like, they lived in Brooklyn, Mm -hmm. I think. Um, But the job in Gulfport was, like, twice as much. He was going to make, like, stupid amount of money. And they were going to, you know, he's going to have a nice house. It was basically just like, come here. We will take care of everything. And the way my mother describes it, it was like that movie, The Firm. Like Mm -hmm. they showed up for the orientation. And the men wearing their southern, you know, summer suits Mm -hmm. grab my dad, seer suckers, (laughs) grab my dad, take him into the smoking room with the cocktails, and and the women folk took my mom away, Mm -hmm. and they talk, you know, talk, oh, honey, come on over with us here, let's, let's, you know, Mm -hmm. start talking about oh, the men folk and all that. (laughs) She says she was like, they left that. My dad had stars in his eyes because they were promising him all this money and all Mm -hmm. these like, you know, they're like giving him booze and like. I'm sure there was naked ladies involved, you know, and, and he's like, this is great. My mom was like, we are not moving to Mississippi. You are taking that <laughs> job in Atlanta. <laughs> and I would think like, well, So you shit. could have been from Mississippi. I could have been I'm like even more of a retarded redneck than, you know, than some people think I am. But uh, yeah, but anyway, so I moved I moved here to Richmond because I had some, some friends here like the next year up, and they moved here. One of them got into VCU for art, and I came down. And, uh, in 1989, just to check it out. And it was just like, this is where the punks went to school, mm-hmm. you know? And I considered myself a punk rocker at the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I remember I met, I met, uh, Randy Blythe on that trip. Uh, but I met him as Shark.
2: Mm-hmm. That's
1: how he introduced himself to me, Shark. And he had, you know, the classic mid to late 80s punk look, you know, the devil lock and a fucking, like, like fatigue pants cut at the knee. Mm-hmm. Big combat boots, but they weren't laced past the ankle. Uh-huh. <laughs> you know, he might—I think he might have had like a
0: Vision Skatewear fanny pack on. Mm-hmm. Maybe uh, something tied around his waist. Yeah, probably mm-hmm.
1: probably some sort of some sort of long sleeve tied around his waist, even though he's wearing a T-shirt with sleeves cut off. But you know, the classic skater punk. look. Yeah, he
0: looked like a, a poor man's Perry Farrell to me when I saw yeah, him the kinda, first time. Kinda. Yeah, kind of,
1: But you know, and he was cool and he was nice, mm-hmm. and and uh, I was really like scared little kid, you know, so. I knew my two friends, and I met this one guy. seemed cool. The punks went to school there. I knew a little bit about Gore, and I knew a little bit about White Cross. Because up in the D.C. area, we didn't hear too much about Richmond Bands, you know. So I was like, that sounds like a cool thing. It's a state college, you know, so it's cheap. My dad won't bitch about it. Um, cause, I mean, I got into Vanderbilt, mm. or whatever. It just was expensive and didn't really want to go there.
0: And know? what did you... Wanted to <clears> two well, I got.
1: I like scammed my way into the music department here in
0: Richmond. So you were already playing at that point. Somewhat? Yeah, I mean high school
1: bands, dude. Right. I've been. I I started playing music with people when I was newly twelve. I got I got my kit like a month before I turned twelve, and it was one of those things where it was like some kids in the neighborhood who were kind of jamming,
2: mm-hmm.
1: probably really badly, mm-hmm. <laughs> heard that I had played drums, and I could just you know I could you know, muscle my way through a four on the floor
2: Mm -hmm. at that point. Mm -hmm.
1: And so I just started playing. So I did several bands through high school, nothing to import, never did anything other than like battle of the bands, never even played a house show. And then I moved here, went to school, got the music department. That shit sucked because, you know, I was a drummer, a self-taught drummer, and they wanted me to sing in key with the piano at eight in the morning. (laughs) <laughs> when you when you go into the music department, like you know the first intro music thing is like it's basic theory, mm-hmm. so you're supposed and all these kids knew how to play piano, you know, like and Joe
0: shit. and shit, yeah, like and, no, yeah. no, even
1: more advanced than that, but it, like all these kids could play piano, all these kids mm. knew some shit, mm-hmm. and I knew nothing,
0: and mm-hmm. I explained
1: this to the teacher, and she's like, "Well, you're here, why don't you try and learn? Yeah, well, that lasted all about maybe three weeks, and uh I had like
0: so what was the like at that point like did it did it turn you off because that's just not the way you wanted to learn music you're not interested in it like that way it turned me
1: i mean it turned me off because basically i was scared shitless yeah you know i was a fish out of water like i mean i was never a popular kid in high school i I was always kind of on the fringe i was never like thrown in with like the dorks and geeks or whatever at least not that i know of but
2: mm-hmm.
1: you know uh i was just kind of like non-existent mm-hmm. you know and then all of a sudden you know and that's maybe that's why i chose drums because you're behind a bunch of shit
0: yeah
2: you're
1: protected
0: you're a bunch of people bunch of shit all the way yep. in the back that's all you know in the world <laughs> i'm good
1: But, uh, you know, with this music stuff here at at BCU, it was like, you have to basically show your individualism Mm -hmm. and your your core basic knowledge of things, of which I had none.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: And I tried to explain this to the professors. And at first, I think her name was Fitzgerald. She's not there anymore. Don't go looking for her. She's not there anymore. (laughs) But, but, uh, yeah, eventually she kind of was just nice. And she was just like, well, maybe this isn't really where you need to be. I was like, you know what? Thanks for letting me quit. (laughs) (laughs) So I dropped out of the the music courses except for my drum lessons. I had an instructor from Baltimore, this guy Barry, and he knew I was self-taught. He knew the kind of music I listened to, and he was great. He was like, all right, we're basically going to be teaching you names for things that you already know how to do, and we're going to refine it this semester. So it was like paradiddles, stick control, you know, flams and... Double stroke rolls and shit like that. And I remember one of my favorite things. You know, this is Barry. He's a jazz musician, and he he would play here in Richmond, play up in D.C. and Baltimore. And he came in one day, and he's like, "Man, I don't really want to be here right now. Uh, i tell you what. Here's what you do. Come back next week. But this is all you got to do, man. Just just do this. And it was like a double stroke roll. He's just like, get your get your pad, sit and watch some TV or something, or get high and just just go, but it, but it. But it, just do that all week and come back. <laughs> you know, and it's like, all right, I can do that. This is great. But it actually was kind of karate kid you know, because mm-hmm. like these basic things yeah. that he was teaching me that seemed inane at the time. You use them all the time in drumming. So anyway, that's that's kind of what's going on. And then I started like. Seeking out, you know, as you do, people who are like-minded. When you're a freshman and you don't know anybody, there's mm-hmm. a couple guys who lived across the street in the other dorm who were from Northern Virginia, which was Doug McDonald and uh, uh, this guy Scott, who I don't know what happened to Scott. But anyway, Doug also was tight with the Avail guys, so and I had been to parties at Tim Barry's house back in Reston because some of the guys in high school I played with lived in Reston Mm -hmm. so I had met Joe I had met Tim but again I was the insignificant kid that no one paid
2: attention to Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) but within three months of moving here I was living in that house you know I knew that's where I wanted to be Mm -hmm. didn't know why had no intentions of joining the band or even whatever I was just a hanger on one thing led to another within seven months of me being here in Richmond I was in that band Who was the
0: drummer before you were in the band? Tim. Oh, really?
1: Yeah, and there was a drummer before Tim. Wow. So I think Mikey Worsler was the drummer before Tim. He's only on the first demo. Um, Like, Joe Banks is the only original member of that band.
0: So so Bo didn't come...
1: Bo kind of came into the picture around 89, I think. Uh, He would be a better... Person asked specifics, but basically the same kind of way that that I got involved. It was just like friends of the dudes would go to the shows with them, help them load in whatever, and then he just started like participating. Mm-hmm. That's where the whole cheerleader thing came in because mm-hmm. it's like they had all the people playing instruments they needed. Yeah. But Bo, being the person he is, like he would just get excited and like dance around, and then it just kind of merged into the stage show, and then yeah, he ended up doing backup vocals, and you know.
0: It, he has told that story on here, but it was a long time ago, and I can't couldn't remember exactly. But uh, so, Avail wasn't like what I was. I only knew you guys as bit seemingly a lot tougher than the dudes I was hanging out with. That's what my impression was, you know. <laughs> and also that it seemed like you. I seem to remember nobody drank, you know. At least that was the vibe, you know. It was more yeah. I mean, that's the vibe that,
1: that that gave off. But we were all really young.
0: I mean... Couldn't drink.
1: Yeah. yeah. Well, couldn't drink technically. I mean, I joined the band uh, when I was 19. I think I might I was No, Chuck McCauley's a month younger than me, so I was older than Chuck. <laughs> <laughs> but then it was like the next person up was probably Bo and Tim and then Joe. And Joe's the same age as my sister, so three years older. But Joe's never been a heavy drinker. You know? I mean, Tim's had his battles with that. And... I think he just kept it to himself. So, And Beau was always, you know, straight edge.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess I assumed since he was then that everybody was. Well, you know, you know? he's
1: a very physical presence and, mm-hmm. and visual person, so it's kind of like, you know, the way people treat singers of bands as like they're the ones who speak for everything that is the mm-hmm. band when sometimes they're just the mouthpiece, you know, or sometimes mm-hmm. they're just someone voicing somebody else's words. Right, right. You know? So. Yeah, I don't know. I mean,
0: so really Avail start. started. You joined it in '90, you said, or '91? 90, '91. And then at that level, what level were you guys? Just were you touring at that point? No no, no,
1: no, no, no. It was um, we were just a local band. They had already made a foothold in Richmond. Like when they they moved here, because Joe was sick and tired of living in, in Reston. Mm. He he had a job offer he worked for Domino's like he was, he had reached managerial status at Domino's mm. and they offered him a position they were going to open up a, a Domino's in London and they were going to send him over to run this store in London wow and, and he just decided he didn't, he didn't want to do that but he didn't want to fucking be in Reston anymore and I don't know what he chose Richmond for but he chose Richmond and he came apparently the story goes he he came to practice one day It was like I'm moving to Richmond if you want to keep the band together you come with me and turned around and like walked out or something like that. <laughs> and, you know, Tim of course was like, Fuck it, I'm at high school now, sure, why not, you know? And they like they've been really active in rest and doing positive things like Jam for Man, which was a basically a all day fest that they would raise money and awareness and food for homeless people. Very influenced by the D C like Revolution Summer type shit. But um and they had played around D C but hadn't really kind of made their name as a DC band, so to speak. I mean, when 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 the band came here, the initial press was like, oh, this DC band now lives here. Right. it's like, you no, know, they were never really a DC band. It was like a band from the suburbs who mm-hmm. was starting to do shit. All they had were demo tapes, you know. I remember when I joined, the first thing that came out was... It actually was... Maybe it was even before... I was the drummer in the band and I was just doing roadie work. It was when the first 7 Inch came out. And then that was just songs taken from the second demo. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So they, half the band quit in that moving process from Northern Virginia. Mm-hmm. So Joe and Tim came here, but Brian Stewart quit because they smoked in the house. which is bullshit he just didn't (laughs) want to move to Richmond and DJ Grimes didn't didn't want to move to Richmond either so they moved here and then two people from a band from Reston who was also pretty active called Remission it was Pat Kennedy and uh, Dave Gilligan they filled the bass and vocal slots and they did that that was when I started working with them as like a roadie so to speak Mm -hmm. and I remember you know we did a couple shows like it was like Maryland and like University of Maryland was one, and they played D.C. Space at one point, which was huge for me, because mm-hmm. D.C. Space was like, that was the cool venue, it was right. kind of like the way the Metro used to be mm-hmm. here, you know, or Rockets or whatever, and um, so that was a big deal, but then Dave and Pat quit together to go cross-country and find themselves, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so Tim and Joe were going to just make the record on their own, they had basically written Satiate, And they were going to just record it on their own. And then they, me and Chuck were living in the house. And I was a drum student at VCU. And Chuck could play guitar. So they asked us to just kind of fill in to flesh out the songs. So that those two guys could go in and and record all the parts themselves. Mm -hmm. But it was just to rehearse. So Tim could get used to singing. You know, and that kind of thing. And then after a little while of doing that, they are just like, this is stupid. Let's just use these guys. That's awesome. Yeah. So the total happenstance you know
0: and how how long were you uh, i you know i was just so ancillarily aware of this and there's so much history Mm. to go into but like i was aware of a veil partly more like when i went to new york Mm. i was more aware of a veil than i was when i was here because people i saw veil patches on people Uh, yeah to
1: regress things like
0: backpacks yeah Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) yeah and and somebody said in some zine up in New York, they said they were talking about all these different towns, and they said best thing about Richmond, Avail. Worst thing about Richmond, Avail patches. Yeah. You know? and um, and I knew about that, but that really it wasn't my scene. And I was actually like, you know, th- and this is also like tying in what we were talking about before. I really like I I had my friends that I felt comfortable with, you know, and like we were into the same stuff, and I saw all of that hardcore and punk and all of and you guys weren't either one of those exactly you were i guess later got considered early emo kind of stuff I don't know.
1: Is, you, know, you know labels are labels right this but you know we would, we would just say melodic hardcore
0: so but like i i not only was like that wasn't my thing and it's not like i thought that was bad music i just it was something like a totally a scene that i didn't relate to cuz yeah. i was i was like just doing something else and but i was also intimidated by most of you guys because you just seemed tougher and like at that point in my and i was like more of a i don't know all mouth all had no cattle you know and i saw you guys as being like a lot more you know you would fight or whatever and like i was just not into that and i it's, i think i have that wrong but that was like my impression
1: none of us really you
0: know?
1: went to but, i mean bo would go to blows yeah people and tim had to some extent I, I certainly was absolutely clueless to half of the violence that happened because I was just always in my own little world in my head, you know. But, like, there was definitely some times where things were just rough, mostly out of town. But there there was a time, like, in the early 90s when there there was some serious run-ins. And this didn't necessarily have anything to do with the band more so than, like, houses, you know, cliques of group houses. Right. And there was, for a time, there was issues with white power skins that were trying yeah. to come... You know, was the thing. It's was, it was so stupid. It was like, oh, the white power skins are trying to take over the town. And really, right. all it was was just like a bunch of knuckleheads who were racist who just wanted to go to shows and or go to bars. And they would say dumb shit to provoke fights. Right. Yeah, but really, like, nobody was really... I mean, no, like, no one was going to stab anybody. Nobody was right. going to fucking shoot anybody. It was all... Pretty harmless mm-hmm. in hindsight.
0: That kind of thing scared the shit out of but, me. Though. Yeah, and it, and it was <laughs> yeah. supposed to, you know. And it, it,
1: but it was like I remember, you know, we had we had people in our house who were just like, no, fuck that. And people like Adam Thompson, who I remember one time he he saw one of the racist skinheads like across the street from the metro, just trying to go get something to eat, and Adam ran across the street and hit him square in the face with a skateboard deck. Wow. And, and a bunch of people started beating the shit out of this Nazi, you know, just because he was a Nazi totally deserved in my opinion but mm-hmm. like that was more extreme you know You're putting but,
0: yourself out there and asking yeah for that i, I remember idea.
1: there was a there's the main dude that everyone was fucking petrified i was this guy darl who was a little bit older had been in jail you know the dude was built like a tank mm-hmm. like a total pitbull tank and i remember there was one party where him and his girlfriend her name was tabitha I think Tabitha was with multiple guys in different periods of times, but at this point in time, her and Daryl were together and and they came to a party on Gray Street and but the party was kind of like towards the back end where the alleys are. And everyone like all everyone just started showering them with bricks. It's like from like second floor balconies. Like they were just throwing bricks at them. And Tabitha, of course, is like terrified. She's like, let's get the fuck out of here. And Darryl was just like, ugh. <laughs> and he just turns around and they, and they walk away there's like bricks it looked like a total fucking movie scene there's like bricks just like exploding near them like by them and he's just walking you know I think one hit him in the back of the shoulder and he just kind of went Ugh. <laughs> and I remember Gwamper of all people was just like nah surely fuck that and he grabbed a mag light and he ran at Darl, coming up behind him probably going you know a good fucking ten clicks and hit him square in the back of the head as hard as he could with the maglite, like the handle part. And Daryl just kind of like lunged slightly forward, like maybe an inch with his head, like boom, and just slowly turned around and sneered at Quamper. <laughs> and Quamper said, oh, fuck that shorty, dropped the maglite and ran back to the party. You know? And that was it. And then Daryl and Tabitha walked away. You know? And I remember seeing that dude at Penny Lane when it was on 7th. One, you know, years mm-hmm, later mm-hmm. after that, and he, you know, my hair was longer, and, and uh, but he, he recognized me, and he just kind of looked at me, and he was like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, I think I'm going to finish this beer, get the fuck out of here.
0: <laughs> but he and never then, fucked with anybody? He no, just. I of-
1: never saw a doll throw a punch. I never saw any of those dudes throw a punch. You know, the, actually, to be honest, the people who, who caused the most problems in that time period in the early 90s were people from Reston. Who would come down here with this, you know, sole purpose of just starting fights at parties? Mm-hmm. It was they called themselves the Hoodlums.
0: Mm-hmm. And, I vaguely remember that. Yeah,
1: they were from Reston and Herndon, and people like Rob Hunt, and Jay, and uh, Billy. This guy Billy, who had been in jail, he had a shark tattooed on his forearm, mm-hmm. but he was like my age. You know? But he would, what he would do was they would they would go to the party. And, uh, Billy would start shit, and then it would always end up with, outside, with Billy ripping his shirt off, screaming, who wants to fight me? Come on, you <laughs> pussies, who wants to fight me? <laughs> Fucking, like, talking shit, till someone finally would step up to shut him the fuck up, and then everybody would jump them. And then it would start a brawl. And the hoodlums ended up getting into a serious brawl with The Riff. Which was people like Charlie... uh uh-huh. the Riffs, yeah. yeah like, the Riff House, you know, right. Fred mm-hmm. yeah, they are the Oregon
0: Hill people. Paul and yep. Eddie Williams. And one husband. of those
1: dudes, I don't know which one, one of them ended up getting a fucking plate in his head because they got into a serious fucking fight. Mike Munoz, I think it was, was the mm-hmm. one who fucking damaged that dude and got him in the hospital. Mm-hmm. Then the hoodlums didn't come back after that because that was like, okay, you crossed a line. Yeah. you know, and But that was like
0: yeah man all of that shit was just like i mean that seemed really like now i look at it and yeah it's just a bunch of kids like whatever but to me at the time it was like i just don't want to be anywhere near any of that i was scared to death of it and like it also just didn't seem like fun you know it was you
1: know honestly it was like i I lived in that house because i played in that band and it was cheap as shit i mean i remember my rent and bills one month was like 28 (laughs) dollars We had 14 people living in the house at one point. Like 14 of us at once. All right. You know, there was lofts everywhere. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. Everyone
1: had a roommate, at least one, Mm -hmm. you know. And but and it was fun, and it was the punk house and shit like that. You know, it wasn't really that much fun, man, you know, because people were shitting each other living, you know. It was like fucking Lord of the Flies Mm -hmm. in that house at times.
0: Yeah, and that's... So that's the thing we can get into. And I, like, well, and, and I was thinking about: Were you still in Avail when, like, in '96, yep. '97? So when you guys came and played at Coney Island High, like, it was either one or two days on St. Mark's, and I was mm-hmm. the manager there when you guys came, and we didn't know each other at all. I only knew Bo. But I remember you now. <laughs> <laughs> I had like bleach blonde hair, and uh-huh. yeah, sort and, of longish. Yeah, it was like Sick Boy from fucking, mm-hmm. you know. And you were wearing
1: um, a black V-neck T-shirt, I think, if I remember correctly. Maybe,
0: yeah. Um, I usually had a gas station jacket on, too. and mm-hmm. You know. um, And, like, that was the first time I'd ever seen a veil. It was in New York at Coney Island High. Like, and uh, loved, like, because, you know, we had a lot of those kinds of shows there, and it would be like 25 to Life and all of these different mm-hmm. bands, and... We had to have a lot of security there for these shows. And um also the Giuliani was like really enforcing the quality of life yeah. initiative thing. Yeah. So like we couldn't even have people on the sidewalk in front of the place like lined up I to get into that, the show yeah. so it was like this constant thing and i was we were all having this meeting before the show and they're like it's gonna be really crazy in here like they may, they're gonna be fights we're gonna have to keep these these kids are gonna knock break the equipment the pa speakers mm-hmm. wedges all this stuff so you gotta you gotta have like six security guys for this show and it's gonna be body to body and blah 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 and it was the chill like i mean there was crazy people on stage the entire fucking time you know but there was no problems it was like a really positive like you know vibe like every if i remember correctly you you look like you you yeah i remember i remember
1: things i remember (laughs) about that was it was like where i had to put my drums was really inconvenient Uh, (laughs) um, and it it was like really hard to maneuver because it was a packed place and i do remember there was some like people being bummed about the amount of security But the show going off without really a hitch and it just being a lot of water and shit on the ground at the end of
0: the show. That place was a mess. I mean, we had some shows in there that were far too big for that room. Like we had Rancid play there. Mm -hmm. And like I came up with the idea that we would open the stairwell to the upstairs part and we could call that part of the capacity as if anybody was going to be up there but it was like insanely packed and it was nowhere they should have been at that stage of their career having to deal with
1: I'm trying to remember who who the show, who we played with there I mean it would at 96 it would have been
0: I think it was more like 98 actually like cuz I I started I got fired from Matador and I got that job like in the spring of 98 and right. I lasted about 3 or 4 months there and then I got in trouble for doing coke on the bar with the LES stitches and <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, to me, it's yeah. Jesse Malin owned that place from Degeneration, you know, and mm. he fired me and he was like, yeah, I heard you were, you know, doing coke on the bar with the stitches after hours. And, and like I knew, you know, that's legitimate. He's a business owner. he didn't want that kind of shit going on there. But like, what would you expect? You know, like it's a punk club, a bunch of punks in there, punk bands. I wasn't, I'd not initially identified myself as part of that, but I, that's when I started to kind of get into it. But like that is that just seems like exactly what you have that kind of job for. Like, it's like in New York City on St. Mark's place, you know, you do drugs in the punk club. Like big deal. Sure. But uh yeah, I get fired for that. But um that place was was crazy and it uh but anyway, that I met I really like Bo, I didn't really know Bo at all at that point. Mm-hmm. And he came up to get paid for the show. Right. And I was at that point where I had been doing a lot of that kind of shit though and I was like New York was starting to get a little like I might not be cut out to live here if I'm going to live like this and like I was starting to consider coming back to Richmond at that point. And I just told him that while I was paying him. I was like it's good to see a familiar face from Richmond and and like I you know i'm thinking about maybe coming back and he was just like well you, you can always come back you know we're always there we'll, we'll welcome you and i was really surprised to hear that from him because i my impression had always been you know you guys were tough guys you mean you like me or like be like fuck curtis or fuck a dude like him <clears throat> no you i mean
1: I, and maybe this is where the email reputation comes in but like i mean we wouldn't take any shit for sure and we were always very cautious but uh I mean, you know, if you got anybody in in that band, either in a group setting or one-on-one, everyone was always very friendly. Yeah. You know? So, because there's no reason to be a dick. Right. You know?
0: Well, people come up with plenty of reasons. And, I mean, this is like the old, all the splits in punk rock, like, that went on in the... 70s and 80s is that some people got into it just because it was an excuse to be a dick you know sure. there were people that were into it because they had values and politics and, right. and and they just wanted to play music without rules they didn't want to have to learn paradiddles they wanted to just play drums and play guitar and and see what happens and right. you know and then all of a sudden there were guys that got into it because they saw a mosh pit or whatever and they thought well this is a perfect opportunity to be violent and
2: yeah, I can fight you know?
1: not get in trouble
0: yeah and and <laughs> I mean, Lester Bangs, like, talked about that with Minor Threat, you know, the first time he saw them play up in New York, and he was like, what's with all the muscle heads, you know, and that's where the flex your head thing came from, was Mm -hmm. him calling them muscle heads, but, like, you know, that, that aspect of it was all I saw, like, until I was in New York, like, I associated punk rock with asshole idiots who wanted to fuck with people and break shit, and... Beat up people and that was their idea of a good time was basically being bullies. You know, that just sounds, I had, like,
1: that just sounds like New York City to me.
0: Yeah, and <laughs> but that my impression yeah. had come from Richmond and New York actually is like switched it for me. I realized, oh no, it's like the people I went to VCU with, like yeah. smart, kind of art damaged, don't know really what to do with themselves creative but don't want to have to fit into a particular discipline in order to be creative you know they want to do this want to do that they got to like some style some fashion sense like to dabble in a bunch of different things you know and wanted to be iconoclasts and you know do something you know that they wanted to you know just pure love of it or whatever like the amateur thing and i didn't realize that that's what it was about until i was up there mm. and then i was like well that's that's where i'm at you know like i'm starting to play music i don't really know what i'm doing i'm self-taught at the age of 26 as opposed to like 12 you know and i'm like well this is i go this way then i don't even have to measure myself against the dudes that have been playing since they were 12 i can you know be in that 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 time-honored tradition of people just having a great look and some good ideas (laughs) (laughs) get into that but um when is that when did you leave Avail? Like when did that happen?
1: Uh 14 years ago last night.
0: Really? Yeah, so an Anna's show
1: was Halloween of 99.
0: 99. I'm glad you didn't make me do that math. Yeah. So it was 99. So right after I came back to Richmond, you quit you quit Avail. I came back in 98 and then Yeah, dude, yeah. it was
1: like I mean, I had been thinking about leaving for a while just because as the band was growing, we were not like as tight as friends anymore, mm-hmm. and like you know, everyone was kind of separating. I was doing other bands to pursue other itches that needed scratched, and it just started feeling like a job more and less like a band, you know. So, but it was like the but the band was huge, man. Mm-hmm. We would go anywhere and play for a thousand people. I had fucking. I hadn't worked a job. $5 you know? a head, that's $5,000. I, I had fucking health insurance, you know, like things were good. We had just signed a fat and uh, I was just like, you know what? I just, uh, it, it came. I, it came to me. We played, we opened up at the boathouse for the offspring and played a sold out show in front of 2,500 people. And I felt bored. Hmm. And I remember, Thinking that, like, while I'm sitting there playing these parts, and, it, and the show is done, and, and I was just like, wow, that's wrong. I shouldn't feel that way. Yeah. I should be fucking excited out of my mind that I just played in front of that many people an hour and a half away from my house, and I'm getting paid well, and, like, it should be fun. You no. Know? I was like, okay, it's time to move on. So... And that was like the summer of '99, and so then I I was like, all right, I gotta go. So I quit. And they're like, well, we have a European tour, and you have to do that. <laughs> so okay, so I did a year, I did the last European tour, and uh, you know, so my last show was sold-out crowd at London Astoria. Wow. I was on my last pair of drumsticks. On the last song, <laughs> we finished. I stood up, just threw the sticks out into the crowd, took off my drumming clothes, threw them in the trash. That was it. Walked away.
0: Well, and not literally
1: because I still, had you get, still on had plane, to get, get on you know. a plane get on a plane
0: right <laughs>
2: but
1: that was it
0: now what is your, your so you come to that this is where you wanted to be now is not where you wanted to be right. like you know what was the best thing about that trajectory there could you say like if you had to look back on that like you know what was the i don't know what was what was developed in you that Led you to that point? Was it the band, or was it you growing? Was there other influences coming in? Uh, like I'm asking about five different questions. I yeah, think, but- I
1: don't know. Um, I don't know how to ex- answer it, like poignantly, but I just knew that it wasn't. I just knew that it was a drag to like I didn't want to be there, and I knew that that was silly because there was tons of people who wanted to be there right. in my place. And I was, I knew that it was financially stupid to quit. I knew it was like from scene status, stupid Mm -hmm. to quit necessarily, but I didn't give a shit about any of that. Right. I mean, I just, just got married to Chris, you know, so she was just like, great. You know, (laughs) (laughs) what are you going to do now? Oh, you're going to go play guitar with those redneck Yahoo friends of yours, you know? So, but that was, that was it really. I was just like, oh, I'm having more fun. And to me, that's what it's always been about. It's like with the music, whatever I'm doing, it, I should enjoy it personally. That's the right. selfish aspect for me. If I'm not enjoying it, then I can't be honest about it. And if you can't be honest about it, then you are sell out and fuck you.
0: And that does really like bring up a, a major question. I mean, we don't get into music because we think that's going to be a job that we do. Most it,
1: people that you know don't. Yeah.
0: Right the people that i consider musicians not and not to be like fucking judgmental or whatever the hell i know there are people who they practiced it as a craft and it's like bricklaying for them and like they're they're cool with being bored with it like that's not but for someone like you or me it's there's this like this thing that's calling you about it you know and like and initially it is about belonging to a group of like-minded people and Mm -hmm. music seems to like represent that it seems to be the thing that pulls it together um it's the thing you all agree on but yet it's also it it creates the aesthetic it gives it like a context and all that and you had come to be with those guys because you wanted that and you found that and you were part of something but you didn't want to be part of that well that in in a way
1: it was like i got Initially involved, it was like I got pulled in from the wake of the momentum of the band already had. Yeah. And then as I found my niche within the band, you create this thing for yourself. Like, all right, this is where I am in life. And this is what I'm supposed to be. But then, as is with anything with music, you know, I don't think any musician like enjoys doing the same thing over and over and over again for their entire life, you know? So by pursue different things. And if you're fortunate enough to be involved with a group of people who are who are everyone's open minded enough where like, oh let's try something like this, try something like that, mm-hmm. involve some different influences, great. But most people don't have that, so you end up inevitably doing another band or right. side projects or whatever. And that can be detrimental to the main group, but more than likely what it what it does hopefully is just enrich everybody's experience in both and all the projects. But it can also highlight things that suck about any of those particular mm-hmm. projects you know and if you i don't know this is a personal preference like i don't ever want to be involved playing music with someone who i consider more to be a coworker, right than like a friend
0: so could that could be both <clears throat> sometimes leaving a relationship is learning it's not so much that like this is not a good relationship it's like taught me something that i want even more like, it's distilled sure. the, the, the desire. So you knew now. Now you weren't, like, pulled into something. Now you are going to pick the thing. Right. I had, you had to pick gonna, I mean, I had yeah. to do that
1: earlier, uh, a couple years earlier, too, because, shit, in 96, we am going back to 96, 96, Avail was touring. I, I mean, I was graduating university, getting divorced, touring, like, potentially six months with Avail. And then when I wasn't touring with them, I would I would do pickup tours with Kilara. Like, we would come back from a full summer tour, and I'd go back out for three weeks with Kilara. ATP was starting, you know. So all this shit was going on for me. And and I had, to like, you know, like I said, the divorce was happening, so that was the choice. Boom, gone. And later on, Kilara had reached a point where we needed to tour more as well. And ATP was still just kind of like yeah
0: so you started kilara and atp while you were still in veil. yeah okay
1: and um but i dropped kilara because they needed to tour more and i couldn't do that for them so that wasn't was your Avail. band
0: kilara, kilara you yeah it, it was, was your band it you was started me. It?
1: it was a mutual Who was the
0: bass team? player's name sam, sam, sam yeah, man, yeah. yeah i used to he's work my neighbor <laughs> he's still around i worked yeah. with him at carry street that's how i met him he's like working the door at carrie street cafe yeah i remember that and too. matt connor was in the matt band. connor was
1: in killara initially yeah mm-hmm. uh but he split after the first demo but yeah that killara came out of two bands it came out of this band sissy which uh sam and cb did together and dopamine which was a band that i the first side project thing i tried to do outside of a veil vale, and i was just singing in that
0: dopamine total disaster yeah
1: (laughs) we did one show in a basement on Cary Street blew my voice out it was horrible and embarrassing but that was that band was like John Peters from Hose Got Cable on bass Fred Lapier played drums Mike Rush and Sam Kravannick from Sissy we're in that band too. That
0: almost sounds like the comedian thing. Like, you guys had obviously worked on this before you played this show. Yeah. Right? And yeah. you thought you practiced. had something. We thought,
1: we thought, we thought it was going to be great. And, and I was getting ready to go on tour with a veil, like a, like a winter break tour. And so I was like, they were like, well, let's play a show. Yeah, sure. Why not? So we just put a show together, like a house show. And uh, I, mean, I was fucking nervous.
0: What man. was that band called? Dopamine. Ser- Dopamine? Yeah. Oh, it almost said serotonin. Was there any connection? to how to, what was that was f- f- how to pray that f- that was a little earlier than that i guess that was like five or six years or f- fred was in a band called how to pray wasn't he like with yeah with chris vasia that was
1: around that was i that was after that i think
0: oh it was
1: yeah maybe not i i know I, I contacted fred because of mulch okay because i kn- i've seen mulch a bunch
0: that that band existed when I before I moved to New York. How to pray? They played at my house when I lived on Parkwood. Right. Uh, so you already had like your irons in the fires with uh, yeah, it was Calera and yeah. Okay, and then Alabama Thunder Pussy, How did that come to be? Like
1: it was just me and Brian Cox and Ezekiah Bogdan. Like Brian and and Ezekiah. I call him Ezekiah now because that's what he wants to be referred to. But we called him Bog. Dog. Okay. He plays guitar in Windhand now.
0: Windhand. Okay.
1: Yeah. Uh, but we would, we lived across the street from each other, and we were always hanging out, you know, just like drinking and listening to music. And I remember we were drunk one night, and it was just we were listening to like maybe Street Survivors or something, The Skinner. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. And uh, we we're like, man, this is great. We should do a band like this, man. We should totally do a band like this. The problem was, I was the only one who was really proficient at, a, at an instrument. But Brian was like, I won't play drums. And I was like, uh oh, okay. So he
0: started playing drums in that band? Yeah,
1: that's how Brian started, was, huh. to, was with ATP. And um, Bog had been playing guitar a little bit, you know, so he was like,
2: well, I'd, play, I'd
1: play some guitar. And I was like, fuck it, I'll play guitar. Because I've been just like, for the last year, I've been writing for Killara, just sitting on my porch with acoustic guitar. So I was like, "All right, well, I can, I can sort of do this." So we were like, "All right, cool, let's get a bass player." We didn't have a bass player for a while. Finally, did got Bill Storms. I don't know if you remember. Bill. Yes,
0: he, he was in Sunshine. He was in Sunshine at the time. Stormy. Mm-hmm. He is no longer with us, right? No.
1: Right. He died in 2001. Stupidly.
0: Yes, the hair on, wasn't <laughs> it. Yes, it
1: mm-hmm. was heroin related. But uh, so Bill Storms came, and we had several singers. Before Johnny Throckmorton. We had Luke Trimmer. I don't know if you remember Luke Trimmer. He sang for Crackhead.
0: No. Right. Johnny was the first one I remember. All
1: right. well, Luke Trimmer was the first singer. And and we all knew we were terrible when we first started. So we all had like stupid stage names. Uh and Luke's was Diamond Mudguts. So he he would come to practice and he would sit there in my dirt floor basement and hang out. But the first couple of times we, we played shows, we would basically just show up and jump a show or show up at someone's house and be like, open up your basement, we're going to play. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. <laughs> you
2: know?
1: And uh, he he would, he refused to play with us. He was like, you guys suck. I'm not embarrassing myself. <laughs> You're missing all the fun. <laughs> I remember we, we, jumped, we jumped a show on Main Street, Suppression was playing, and it was like the second show we played. Mm-hmm. And we were just still just... a no, I think Bill. This is the first one Bill Storms played with us, and I remember Luke came and he sat in the audience, and I still have it. He he had like a he was like had a cold or something. a uh, had some Nyquil Caplets, and he took the packaging and he flipped it inside out and wrote on it and and put the sign in front of us so we would see it. and It said worst band ever.
2: Oh wow. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway,
1: you know, Luke kinda just went went away when uh we played Henry Street Gallery. And at that point we were like not a good band but cohesive enough that it was like, Oh, okay, these guys are playing. But they're songs, you know. Mm-hmm. And Adrian Drugas saw us play. She had just moved to Richmond from California. And I don't know if you Adrian
0: used to sing for Spitboy. I don't. I remember that name, but I don't remember Spitboy. Or they lumped into
1: Riot Girl. They were like a all all woman, um, kind of hardcore punk band from uh-huh. California. But <clears throat> she moved here. She got the Richmond Bug. like the bug. Bay Area. Yeah, uh-huh. she got the Richmond bug. She moved here, and she saw us do that. And I mean, we were like we had like Confederate flags on the grills of the mm-hmm. amps. You mm-hmm. know, total just did not River care. River
0: City revival.
1: Yeah, did not care. We were you know young and stupid, but she was just like after the show because she and I knew each other because the bail had played done shows with her and and uh, she's like I have to, I have to sing for you guys I was like are you sure you, seriously like you were in spitboy like you don't you want to sing for this you know what we're called right she's like yep yep I was like all right well you're gonna have to get a, an ATP name she's like I got one Alabama okay so she joined and she took it seriously she wrote lyrics
0: So the band was already called Alabama Thunderbuss and she said she was Alabama? Yeah.
1: Yeah. And we played one show with her. We played with Hickey and Fuckface at 805 West Carey Street. Taylor Steele lived there at the time. And uh, we played that show with her, and then she moved to New York. (laughs) And then Johnny Throckmorton joined.
0: With his Roger Daltrey kind of act. Well,
1: back then, we knew him as Johnny Longhair. Yeah. Because he had long blonde hair down to his waist.
0: But it was always in a hat. Like, I never saw him. No, her. this
1: is this this is before the hat. Oh. Like, I don't know. The hat thing came about, I think, because he got sick and tired. I think it was a co- coalescent of he got sick and tired of being called Johnny Longhair. And I think he also decided he was going to try and do dreadlocks. Hmm. And that's what I Stucked guess you it up do. When yeah. you, you know, Get you it just, tangled and yeah, shit. You, yeah, and it just never worked out very well for him on the dreadlock scene.
0: Yeah, it's just like, as we talk about this stuff, I just come up against, and this is like a, a thing early on, and I maybe just dictate so much of this, is like prejudices, misapprehensions, uh-huh. you know, things like, and and also like, what music was to me at that point was gradually becoming more like, I know what's cool, you know, and there's a specific way you have to do it for it to be cool. And if you don't didn't get there at the right time, or you're not doing it exactly like that, it's not cool, and I was very into the southern tinged stoner you know the billy sure. B- Billy Anderson stuff, you sure. know like I hate god and and I liked it when Buzz oven went in that direction, they went you know from being this kind of thrashy thing to being this groovy thing. you remember that like at a loss and they uh-huh and that um,
1: was that was buddy buddy apostle
0: so i was when i came to richmond i was not charitable about you guys at all like i yeah. i got the did you do river city revival on man's ruin or was it yep. yeah and i loved all the man's ruin stuff like that was like okay this is it this is the stuff i'm talking about like yeah. and and i liked it, the gamut of that from the helicopters to you know the queens of the stone age stuff and everything in between you know that was all like that's my aesthetic it's a little bit punk rock it's a little bit 70s rock.
1: A little bit sleazy. You know? maybe, yeah. You know.
0: It's sleazy. That's right. It's got the sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing going on. Sure. It's smart and dumb as shit at the same time, kind of like the Ramones. You know, It's got that um, – like a lot of it is formulaic. It's a big wall of guitar sound. People – they know what they're doing being dumb. Right. You know, But I was already getting burnt out on that by the time I came. I mean it's, I still loved it a whole lot, but like certain stuff I had decided was like over – you know, for me, and you guys were doing that thing, you know, like, it. and I felt like, and this is none of my fucking business to decide where the flag goes in the sand to say this, but, like, I was not cool, like, about that record at all, like, I think (laughs) I accused you of missing the boat with that whole thing, and I would not, now, knowing what I know now, because I totally got to pay for that, like, that, because you guys were doing what I did with the Devil Tones, you just were like, okay, I kind of can play, so I'm going to do this, you know. I was that kind of guitar player. Uh, I I can I know the bar chords and I know the cowboy chords, so I'll be the guitar player. Right. And I, we came out and started playing shows, and everybody hated us and thought we sucked. And <laughs> I got to get what I'd been given out, you know. But you know, it's in, like the thing I was thinking is there's, there's a whole bunch of different little tendrils that pop into my head about this. One is that you had just as negative an experience with Alabama Thunder Pussy. As far as reception, I guess, as you had with, um, not serotonin, but what dopamine. was it? Dopamine. Yeah. <laughs> with dopamine, but you gave up. You were like, "Fuck dopamine!" Like, you're, I'm not committed enough to this to suck at it. What, I what guess, ended up happening
1: with dopamine is it just like it fused? Like dopamine. Okay. We did that show,
0: and then you and did. It was horrible. Uh
2: huh.
1: And I went on tour, and when I came back, fully intending to continue, basically oh. John Peters and Fred. I decided, right. like, well, this kind of sucks. Let's get out of here. But uh, Sam and Mike Rush were still, like, in, into playing. And I was also kind of sitting in on Sissy, which is the other... That's where those guys came from. And Sissy had CB Hawk So we were like, well, let's just start jamming, mm-hmm. you know. And that's where we took... That's how we took, we took a bunch of the Dopamine songs and a bunch of the Sissy songs and formed Kilara.
0: So, but the pushing through the suck, you know, <laughs> and being willing to suck out in front of everybody and develop, you know, in front of your audience, you know, yeah. or, or not, you know, and having the willingness like to say, hey, if I don't, this is again like the comedian thing, like, I don't get this right this time, I'm not going to stop doing it. I like, think I'm that's,
1: gonna... that comes a lot with the naivety of youth and alcohol.
0: So you think that's, I mean, you did, you didn't like, you didn't think it sucked to some degree, but you were like, it's going to get better, I'm just going to keep working at it, or were you just... didn't even care you're just like I've already done this thing that everybody loved and I just want to Uh, do what I want to do
1: well I know I know with like with with dopamine with that one show I knew the songs were good I just knew that I wasn't good at what I was doing Mm -hmm. and I tried doing something drastically different basically I was like well if Tim can move from drums and do singing well why don't I try Mm mhm because I shouldn't have done that.
0: <laughs>
1: so, because not only could I not sing, but I just I was just awkward, man.
2: You know? Right,
0: like, being in front of people yeah, like that. You know, yeah. and,
1: it, and you don't realize it until you're there in that moment. You, you have
0: the microphone in front of yeah, you. Yeah, and everyone's mm-hmm.
1: staring at you, and you're supposed to sound eloquent and intelligent. And,
0: and lead the whole thing. And yeah. now you've gone from having all of that shit in front of you. Exactly. You know, so not...
1: I figured, that, well, that sucks. So I went back to doing what I knew, which was drums, and that's when the Kilar thing gelled. And Kilara... I have this thing, it's like anytime I see a band, okay, it doesn't matter if I like what they're doing, I can still acknowledge if they're a good band or
2: not, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, and and you can tell that based on various factors, so whether people like Killar or not, we were a good band, you know. Um, and Somebody out, actually
0: just talked about liking you the uh, other day. We did. I you mean, know?
1: we we toured. We went out. and We just said, "Fuck it, we're gonna do it," you know. Mm-hmm. And and we had records out, and you know, we had a split with Hellchow from Japan. So like, obviously, some people liked it, you know. And the same could be said for ATP. Like when we first started, like you listen to that first album, and it's very like very very basic. Yeah. You know
0: and. But it's, and, and I didn't. The music didn't bother me. Yeah, I'm sure it was
1: uh, a lot of it was just the posturing and the image and stuff. But a lot of that was just thrust on you. You know, it's right. like it's like, like especially with Man's Ruin. It's the one thing. I mean, I love being now in hindsight, having known that I was part of that history. But at the time, there were certain elements that were extremely frustrating because, you know, yes, Frank would give us money to record with, but that's about the extent of our control over it. Like we when it came to the image. It was like, right. you sent the music in and then the next thing you know, the layout was done. You were, yeah. never, even, you were never shown what the layout was going right. to be. It was just like, here it is, boom.
0: This is your record and you look yeah. like some antique photo of the fucking Civil War. Yeah,
1: yeah. And, and like, you know, yeah. like I felt like on the first album, he spent time on, on the drawing, you know, and kind of half-assed the back cover. back mm-hmm. cover got us in a lot of trouble because there was a Confederate flag on it. And then, but on the second record... He just fucking threw that thing together for sure. He found some stock yeah. photo.
0: Well, obviously and, you, know. you weren't the only ones getting that treatment, no, and the whole totally fucking not. thing went down. Well, then he in did. Then he decided
1: and... the great idea where he was gonna like make the front cover the back cover. Yeah.
0: You remember that? Yes.
1: So, which made no fucking sense whatsoever to anyone other than to Frank Oz. All
0: of his records were backwards, yeah. yeah, and they didn't Right.
1: And and that record cover for Constellation, the first one let's just also look like shit it was oh, like oh yeah it was just like it was like
0: sailor S- jerry kind of like tattoo right
1: you know was like what the fuck does this have to do with us you know like
0: nothing they were deciding who you were yeah rather than and that's the thing that actually
1: and they're deciding this from san francisco
0: right they don't know richmond they don't know nothing yeah. they know richmond california it's near oakland yeah uh, that's the the thing about what what became attractive to me about Leonard Skinner and Southern Rock and all of this kind of shit is that when I moved to New York, I thought I was moving into simpatico town. You know, people like me, people who like the music I like, like the art I like, like the books I liked and movies I liked and all that kind of shit. And I was for me. But for them I was some southern kid yeah. who was from a racist city right. with a bunch of rednecks, yeah. more you know, racist, one than horse New York, shithole, right, yeah. you know. And and I was like, wait a minute. And at first I was like, you don't understand. It's not like that. i to fucking art school like in my town and I went to it and, and everybody's and they're like, Yeah, 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 whatever. Yeah. You know, um Southern boy, southern boy, southern boy. And I was having southern boys shoved on me more and more and more. I never identified as that, living here. You know, I, I was like as soon as i could get out of here i was trying to get out of here i didn't i didn't identify with richmond and then up there my friend eric roper and i like we really got like yeah okay if that's going to be thrust on us we're going to like really blow that up and like really get into it and that seemed to be simultaneously happening for a lot of people that were saying hmm well if hip hop is celebrating the most negative aspects of like of uh, ghetto culture and black culture and all of this kind of stuff and and you know sort of wearing it as a badge of honor then you know we should also celebrate the blue collar, the white trash, the redneck, mm-hmm. all of that kind of stuff. That's that's and and it was a totally a style sort of fashion choice, but there, under underlying it was like, uh, hey, these guys are just as maligned and just as downtrodden and just as you know exploited and just as fucked, you know, the the trailer part guys and whatever. And it started to be a thing that, you know, I I celebrated the Confederate flag as an image uh, not of racism but of the poor misunderstood you know like maligned southerner there's supposed to you be know? a good documentary
1: and coming out about the confederate flag itself like uh or we should say the battle flag um next year one of the women involved with that podcast or the radio program nerdette oh yeah she's doing a nerdette movie on it
0: that sounds cool and you know so a lot of us a lot of people i think we started adopting that and more and more like feeding into that because other people were telling us what it was. Yeah, but the problem you know?
1: is, is like and this is a this is one of the greatest lines I ever heard was an RPG line. And this it kind of coalesces or is similar to this as well. It's like Matt Connor sings in that song early 72, I think he's mm-hmm. like, "When was the last time you rode a horse, cowboy?"
0: Yeah, right.
1: Cuz you know, you'd go to any show anywhere in America and some jackass is wearing fucking Big-ass belt buckle and dungarees mm-hmm. and a cowboy hat.
0: Right. It's a you're fashioning. thing. Like, and are right. like,
1: dude, you're in fucking New York City or mm-hmm. you're like in Chicago right mm-hmm. now or you're, you know, some place where, not that you're not Super allowed, you right, know, right. But, it, but it's like you're obviously doing this for fashion. This has nothing to do with keeping the sun out of your eyes right. or, you know, whatever. And there's nothing inherently wrong with enjoying looking a certain way, right? but inevitably most of the people who do that shit are fucking dildos so man. like
0: i mean matt and i had that i think we we met And shared in that attitude, but about different things. And I was real judgmental about, no, you got to be like really somehow connected to this, Mm -hmm. you know, this thing that you're going to style yourself in. And like, I remember I was going to talk about this earlier, like how he was about like the sword, you know, and which weren't the sword then, they were ultimate dragons, you know. Uh, And like,
1: (laughs) those were the dudes in Richmond when, I mean, I remember people who went on to be in that band. When they were in Richmond, they were in my band, The Ultimate Dragons, or at least one or two of them were, which is more of an indie rock thing. And those were people who would talk mad shit on my band. Who? Maybe. Band on any band who that. Who would do played, that though? Any band. I, quote unquote. It wasn't JD. Unquote, JD was
0: the biggest nerd. He would stay in his fucking house and watch movies <clears throat> and smoke pot and play guitar. Like he didn't even go out, you know. Like. Now,
1: the, one of the quotes that came out of the mouths of one of them, I can't tell you for sure because it was given to me secondhand, was people that listen to metal are stupid. Mm. And then they went and formed a metal band.
0: See, that's, you know, and it doesn't sound like something, say for instance, <laughs> David DiDonato it would say because he was a huge lover of that stuff. Maybe right. Trivet.
1: It was probably Trivet. Yeah. Because Trivet has since, like, I, I someone told me a story about Trivet recently that he's given up playing drums. Right, and the only the only time he'll ever pick up playing drums again is if James gives him a call. James Hetfield, because <laughs> <laughs> you know the sword opened up for Metallica, and they drums.
0: played a sword song when. Uh... But okay, look. So the thing I'm trying to somehow like, I'm not like this anymore. But it was a, there was a phase where it's all about like. You're allowed to do this or you're not allowed to do this. You're the real right. thing or you're not the real thing. And and part of that had gotten into me because of New York, because there are all of these people who are all like put on an image and they're they're just the beautiful people who are co-opting shit and doing a fashion thing. And I had a real problem with that and I had an attitude like that should not be, you know. And that's I think part of the a youth thing that there's a way – this should be this way and it should not be – this way i don't feel that way anymore but that really strongly like directed me and decided what i was into or what i was not into um and i don't know where i'm going with this but like you know it 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 decided like okay i for instance my own fucking band that i was in i didn't feel was enough that hmm. you know like the guys in the band were not enough like you know where i wanted it to be they were too real with being rednecks you know, I wanted them to be a little bit more intellectual and a little bit more like, you know, art damaged than they were. I was like, I was actually becoming converted into being more like them. Like we go down to, you know, North Carolina and we get in a fight and I kick somebody in the head, you know, while they're on the ground, yeah. you know. Yeah. And and I part of me was like, okay, I, I should try that sometime, <clears throat> you know. It like, <laughs> looks like fun. <laughs> or at least know what I'm Turning. down? No, actually, the truth is, I had tried to fit into so many things by that point. And the reason I wasn't fitting into them is because I was a drunken asshole. But I being a drunken asshole, a true drunken asshole, I thought, you just don't get me. You just don't understand me. It's all you are wrong. I'm right. Right. So then I found myself this thing to be in where everybody was like that. You know, and we were all pissed off that somehow we weren't getting the thing we were. Which is,
1: man, I don't get it. Fuck them.
0: Yeah, they don't understand, man. We're fucking one percenters, and we're like outlaw bikers. And and like, I understand now that almost all of this shit, whether it's redneck or you know extremes of uh, hip hop culture or rap culture, whatever, it comes from thinking that you're not getting a fair shake, and you're going to put all your energy into how unfair the fucking situation is, and you're going to develop like. Problems with all this stuff. Rather than put your energy into succeeding, however the fuck you have to succeed where you're at, mm. you're gonna just say I'm being kept from succeeding by these people that don't get me and are actively trying to keep me down. And like, and I, I would say that you know the rednecks, you know, especially people who wind up being you know racist rednecks and wind, wind up being racist skinheads or like came out of that screwdriver thing. Like you know those were those were dudes that thought the immigrants coming to England were keeping them from getting jobs, so then they decided they wanted to do the neo-Nazi thing, which meant that those guys had to go, and then they could get jobs rather than, hey, maybe I should just go get a job and work, mm. you know. But, you know, I, so I went all the way to that extreme, but like now it just seems so ludicrous that anybody's saying that. You know, we're in a, such a microcosm of '70s rock-loving kind of guys. Like between, like say, ATP RPG, Alabama Thunder Pussy, and and whatever. And then we're all deciding, no, you guys are are a little too far over there. Right. You guys are a little too far. Stop playing your <laughs> stringed instrument. <laughs>
1: Exactly wrong way from the way I'm playing my stringed instrument, you know. Yeah.
0: Yeah, and and really we should be glad because then we all get to be distinct in our own.
1: Well, that's thing, you know you this know. goes back to what you're saying about stupid clicks in town because it's my fondest thing about the town was there didn't seem to be that kind of shit where it was like people just nitpicking the minute,
0: you know. Well, it wasn't like that in the when you got here. No, like when the when
1: I late- got here, it was like there really wasn't a whole lot of hardcore going on. So it was like, it was, it started and it blossomed
0: overall. It was like, I could show up. I had gone to prep school for high school. Like I'd come out of Churchill. My parents had said, you're going to get fucked. If you go to Armstrong, you go to, uh, Marymount. Like, and that was complete culture shock, whatever. But I assimilated, I figured out how to do my thing there. And then I came back to the city to go to VCU. And, I was accepted everywhere that I went looking like I did, which was not like everybody else, you know, like Uh yet these warehouse (laughs) parties, these shows, you know, hang out in Schaefer court, whatever. It was a very inviting, accepting, it's all good kind of attitude in the early 90s. And it, it gradually got more and more negative and like, If your your thing is cutting into my thing, kind of attitude, and
1: or just or people getting envious of people's success, like, and that's always a bummer. And I don't necessarily think that's out of control in this town, but there's some element of that. It's like if someone starts to do well, you know, people start talking shit about it. Mm You know, like, oh, well, they're only doing that because of blah blah blah. Hater's gonna hate. Yeah. Right. (laughs) Not to quote Taylor Swift (laughs) now. You know, but anyway,
0: yeah, whatever, man, I've
1: I, I come to the, like what I was saying before about, you know, being able to determine whether a band is bad or good doesn't, doesn't determine in my mind on whether I like their music or
0: not. Right, right.
1: You know, I fucking detest hip hop and rap music. I yeah. can't stand it. it. I have a very visceral, physical reaction to it, which in and of itself makes it extremely valid because mm-hmm. it creates that within right. me. Right. but.
0: It's not the you know, subject it's not a thought process. But I don't it's have like,
1: to listen to it. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Like nobody's forcing me to listen to it. So just because I don't like it does not mean that it's not valid and it sucks, you know? It mm-hmm. doesn't suck.
0: So I that's just what don't like it. <laughs> so that's what brings when I was thinking about the Confederate flag earlier, you know, everybody people say that the main reason that we have it is to remind us that we are who we are, right? Of the South, that we're, dis, we're this distinct thing at some point.
1: Who who is is this that's saying that? Well,
0: a lot of the flaggers say it's our heritage, you know, whatever. And the thing is, is that the American flag represents everything in America. And the idea is that America is a place where everything can exist. Mm -hmm. It has always Mm -hmm. been that, you know, even though at different times there's been a dominant white, you know, European, like English aristocracy aristocracy came in here and they got on top of the tobacco trade and did all of this kind of shit. And they, they called a lot of it. The ultimately they could not control everything that was going on in this country. There was culture from everywhere, always going on here, including the native American culture, um, African American culture, South, you know, whatever Indian stuff was coming up from there. And then Chinese, you know, Japanese, all, all this stuff has always been mixing here. And that our identity is supposed to be this crazy melting pot of of influences, yet we get stuck in this idea that it's there's supposed to be this you know one thing or this other thing that is American you know that and then and then subsets of that and, you know we're from the south, and we are a distinct thing, and we should be a distinct thing, and we need our own flag down <laughs> here you know and yeah like it's antithetical to really what the spirit of the the country is like truly live and let live like like you're saying like i don't have to like what you're doing there's plenty of air for you to you know breathe doing your thing over there you don't have to like what i'm doing we don't have to go to war about it, we can actually enjoy the tapestry that this country is because there's all these different people doing all these different things.
1: Yeah, well, that'd be great. that—that yeah. that, I don't see that ever happening.
0: Well, you can at least <laughs> you know, practice it once in a while. Thinking I try like to. that, you I know I try what to I mean? It on
1: daily basis, I try to instill that in my son. You know, but mm-hmm. but
0: there ain't going to be a big revolutionary movement where that happens. But certain people every now and then have to say. We have to get out of that youthful thing where, like, I need to set down the fucking tent stakes or the fence around the compound that is, like, me and my friends that are right and are cool and all the rest of you guys are somehow wrong. This paradigm has to go, you know. The way you guys do this shit has to stop, you know. You stop thinking like that and start thinking, like, I'm just going to keep doing the thing that is that I dig really well to the best of my ability, you know, Mm -hmm. and – And just keep pushing that thing out there instead of being anti all this stuff. That to me seems like the maturity. Yeah.
1: I I think all of it just boils down to essentially people being stuck in a corporal form and Mm -hmm. having to justify being alive. Mm -hmm. The basis of that, you know? Because it's Mm -hmm. like, why am I here? Well, who am I? What, you know, the influences I have that create my interests, whatever. So you just. Boundaries upon boundaries upon boundaries,
0: you know, and then yeah, you're doing that to yourself,
1: right? Which then the counterpoint to that is the isolation creates people's desire to belong, so you find like-minded other corporal beings and band together, and I don't know, it just gets ridiculous. I've been watching too many episodes of Cosmos, I guess.
0: Oh well, no, that's good. <laughs> that's because the thing is, is that we are not limited as these corporeal beings you know like with with the same bodies and brains that we have that were evolved to survive on a savannah Mm
2: -hmm.
0: we have we can shoot things and land them on other planets you know there's we're able to imagine and comprehend and do much much bigger things than petty shit related to fashion and language and culture and it's really cool to like have friends that like what you like you know sure. that's awesome. You know, but to have the attitude that I came back from New York with that, like, there's a specific way that you're supposed to play punk rock, and like, and mm-hmm. it's not that shit with the mohawks. It's actually like Richard Hell did it. That's cool. All right, all the rest of that's that's bullshit. You know.
1: Okay. Well, uh, I can, let me jump to so somebody real quick. Do you like X? Yes, I, I do. Fucking hate.
0: You X. hate X, really? I
1: hate X. So there we go. There's a perfect example.
0: Yeah, and, but you <laughs> know, I didn't like X until I lived in L. A or the LA area. And then hmm. then it get like
1: put it in context to make Yeah. Sense.
0: Then I understood like she had to leave Los Angeles, you know, her hands turned red flying over the date line and you know. And I understood like the whole other like I cuz I now I was I'd left that too. Like so the 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 drama of of what X was writing about now was a context I understood. This is where yeah. we're
1: coming. This is also a little differences because you're coming at this from a, a wordy perspective, and I'm coming at it from a music perspective because you're quoting lyrics to me, and I'm just thinking music. Ah. I don't like their songs. Right. I could care less about what they're saying.
0: But listen to Los Angeles. I'm sure.
1: It a, makes, I'd rather read it because listening to it makes me not want to read it.
0: Right. <laughs> But you, so you never paid attention. See, I never paid attention to lyrics either. And I didn't like, like, I really, like, closely, once I learned about the history of sort of Northeast punk rock and then, like, what came out of Michigan and, like, what came out of Cleveland and, and then the Velvet Underground and, like, how all this, my elitist, like, intellectual stuff was, like, made happy by this, that it was like that with, but throw away the discipline. And, like, get wild, you know, because I was uptight, ultimately, and I wanted to not be uptight. I wanted to be able to be smart and, like, looking at all of these things and exploring all this stuff, but I didn't want to be uptight. I didn't want to be an academic. I didn't want to be scared of shit. I didn't want to, you know, I didn't want to be self-conscious. I wanted to really, like, lose myself. In something. And so I love the way that that seemed to work up there. But I thought of the LA punk and the Southern California punk. And, you know, well, that's Southern California punk. I thought of all of that shit as like just the fashion, you know? Mm -hmm. Like all they got was the clothes that Malcolm McLaren, (laughs) like, you know, celebrated and put out there. And they didn't have that spirit out there. But then you go out there and realize, oh, they're dealing with some other whole other set of circumstances that also is worth writing punk rock songs about and and like their take on rock and roll and their take on all of that shit is um it's interesting like i mean you know x came out they were doing more like trying to bring back 50s rock and roll kind of stuff which a lot of times is what that's also what the ramones were doing people wanted to get back to the basics the garage band thing and they were doing that but they also had they had the art damage i don't know whatever I a lot of, somebody gave me two books to read, you know. It's like please kill me, and we got the neutron bomb, and like that put a lot of that shit, in. it made it, it gave it a context for me. And maybe music should be visceral, like you, you like it or you don't the first time you hear it. But like I also like being oh becoming the person that can appreciate the thing, sure. realizing oh I do connect with uh, Billy Zoom, and is that his name yet? Is the guitar player Or was he in something else? The Cult. Who's a guitar player, and that doesn't matter um, but yeah, I mean it there is the visceral music stuff, and there is this this stuff that's you know um, it's legitimate to want to be with your your like minded guys everybody sure. we all look the same and we, we we support each other by doing our thing together, but I really am like over the last four years, I've gotten really into all these people that I've decided I don't want anything to do with and I don't like. Where did I get that idea? Like, why did I say that? That's not cool. Mm. Was there ever actually any thought, or was that totally a visceral response? It was based on my limitations as a person, and do I have to be limited by that? Couldn't I just expand from my original programming, you know, and start like opening my? I mean, that's part of what's going on here. Is I've invited a lot of people to be on this show that I decided I didn't think were cool. I didn't like what they were doing. And I wanted to find out like who they actually are 'cause that's awesome. Yeah. You
1: know. I mean I, I, personally like I thought Charlie O'Donovan hated my guts for years because of that whole riff
0: oh, uh, house
1: thing, you know. But yeah. I was just like, Man, I was just a little guy who lived in that house, you know? And then ATB went out and played in Seattle when he was out there with Todd and they put us up and Charlie was his fucking sweetheart, man. We're you know we're neighbors now. <laughs> he lives like, over there too. Yeah, he, he, yeah. I saw him saw him yesterday. He wants to start a neighborhood association in Northside, which basically means he just wants to have people come over to his uh, man cave in his garage and get drunk.
0: So that's actually closer. Uh, I didn't. I think of that as being two totally different neighborhoods, but it, it's all pretty close together. And you guys are in Battery Park or Barton Heights. Barton Heights. Or, so, Barton Heights.
1: So, you know, it's like it's kind of like that whole little area is strange to me because they have different names for little segments of basically when I'm thinking about it topography wise, like the same plot of land,
2: mm-hmm. you know, right. And it's like
1: divvy. It's like parceled out. So you have Barton Heights, Southern Barton Heights, uh, Highland Springs, Lakeside, Montrose, like, you know, like mm-hmm. whatever, like, but everything is like back to back right next to each other. Mm-hmm. you know? And, it's like what's well, all Northside, right? Right. And they're like no, no, no. It's completely different. And I think a lot of it maybe boils down to like the districts with you know council people and all that. But yeah, I mean I live walking distance from Overby Shepherd, but not Stig's even exactly. Not, sure. Stig's not district there, and uh, you know they they put a whole new housing development over there where Dove Court used to be and. Um, there's a plan to rebuild Overby Shepherd or knock it down or something. They want a new school and it's like, it seems completely fine to me, you know, I'm sure there's mm-hmm. things that need fixing in there, but the council woman who's over there, she, it's part of this whole plan and the right. mayor's involved with it. Who as is well. it? Who's your council She's not my councilwoman. Uh, oh, she's like the next, well, not, next it's not Mosby, up. is it? No, Mosby's. Closer to you, it's Mosby's like, right there.
0: No, no, I mean the council person. No, There's no. There's a woman no, it's, named uh, Mosby that's, or I think, she might be Southside though. Reva Trammell, Parker Angelisu, Belisles, Cynthia Newbill? Is no. she No, because she's over here. It's the,
1: it's the dude, who, uh, the one who represents me.
0: Oh, your council person's a guy?
1: Yeah, I think Is so. Is it Hibbert,
0: Christopher? Yeah. Yeah. It's that dude. Yeah. Okay. There definitely seems to be like, and, and I wasn't aware of this stuff until like kind of like, you know, I saw Mo Carnage go to talk about Monroe Park at City Council, right? And then realized that they committed to that Monroe Park thing because they want to stop having to take care of Monroe Park, so they can free up the funds to buy this other site that's in Co- Mosby's district to create a rec center. So they're they have to shuffle. There's all of this shuffling, like, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like what they do at the national level with pork, you know, or earmarks or whatever. Like, if you want this, you have to give me that, and like, there's and they're all of the and so the constituents are crying out for this to happen, and they so they try to make that happen, but in order to make that happen, they have to unmake something mm-hmm. else that's going on. And Which uh, I
1: understand, like, I understand all that, and I think that, but people can't just lay it out and play it english speak you know everyone has to like manipulate the conversation so mm-hmm. that they don't look like a dick mm-hmm. or a selfish person for wanting mm-hmm. something cool for their people that voted mm-hmm. them in supposedly you know it's like everybody is trying to do something that good.
0: wouldn't it be cool if
1: would it be great <laughs> yeah if
0: we could really just say what our agenda is instead yeah. because it's so much more the reason i resist things that i resist is not because the ideas. A bad idea. It might be a bad idea, but I don't like if you're trying to get it through by blowing bullshit, blowing smoke up my ass, pissing down my neck and telling me it's raining. I mean, that's what my problem with the mayor and this whole Chaco Bottom thing is, is it's obviously that a hand, very obviously a handful of people got together and decided this was best for them. And totally. then they're trying to sell it. And we are we know when we're being bullshitted like that, it couldn't be more transparent. So then it's like you're insulting my intelligence, and it really makes me angry that you would try to –
1: Right. So fuck you and take right. your idea about a ballpark and
0: right. go somewhere else. You, if you want to do something like that, you've got to be transparent from the very beginning. Right. And
1: well, the problem is it, when you have a situation when we're talking about the ballpark is it is, like you said, a handful of people who are going to make a ridiculous amount of money personally yeah. from having that there. Mm-hmm. So it's not a communal, beneficial thing. Like, they try to spin it. Like, oh, but it's going to create jobs. It's a job creator. Right. Yeah, well, who's going to get those jobs? Are the people in the neighborhood going to get those jobs? Probably not. No. It's the same thing with Stone Brewery. It's like, are they going to hire a bunch of people from Fulton for those jobs? Probably not. You know, they're going to bring in teams. Right. Stone is going to bring in a good portion of people. They're going to move people to Richmond. You know.
0: you know what would be what would be cool if that this brewery culture that is establishing itself in Richmond, the microbrewery thing. There's a lot of them. If we could tie that to an agricultural thing in this yeah. town, well, with,
1: the, this is a question that I have about about the Fulton thing, which mm-hmm. nobody's taught, brought up as far as I can tell. Because Fulton Gasworks, where they're talking about doing it, is right where Fulton Gasworks is. Right. And I remember there being some. Murmurs maybe 10 years ago about how they wanted to develop that.
0: But the ground is seriously polluted. But it's
1: like millions and millions of dollars for environmental cleanup. Yeah. Because there's tanks of oil and crap submerged in there, and it's right on the fucking river. So once you disturb it, you know what I mean? So if Stone is talking about basically going right next door to that. What are they doing about the environmental impact? I think if
0: you look into it, because I think there may be... Across the river where Ancaro's Landing is, they are they have announced that that Exxon uh, and whatever company was originally ex, it was before Exxon or after Exxon or whatever they did a bunch of fucking shit related to petroleum over there and they kind of fucked it up and they're cleaning that up and doing soil reclamation over there to make that a nice spot again. Hmm. So I think there That's might be the,
1: is that tied in because of the the, the slave trail thing.
0: Yes. Yeah. And yet it's also a great idea, like why the city waterfront down here hasn't been made more accessible and, and, you know, like it is in Chesterfield and, you know, out here where you can, you can take a canoe down the river. It's a piece of cake. I mean, Anchorage Landing is like an industrial boat landing. Like it's, it's very difficult. You know, my sister and I (laughs) put a canoe in down there and it's, it's dirty and, and like, uh, this giant concrete ramp that's kind of covered in silt and mud and, um, it, it would be great to make that more simpatico and sure. so and Rico, which was the company my grandfather my great grandfather founded, it. It Richmond Engineering Company. They sold it in the eighties. They do soil reclamation and the great trail railroad tracks run straight to what the hell? Um, I'm not sure what you say <laughs> Series. Of series and series involving. Um, it just that's weird. Um <laughs> <laughs> they their railroad tracks that run straight from that point to they're right up at the um underneath the Martin Luther King Bridge, like up where the city jail is, uh-huh. and they do soil reclamation up there. They go they clean up soil. So I've been wondering when any of the people are going to put two and two together and say we have a company that fixes this. Shit. Oh, that's right. And I know where that is. Yeah. Yeah, right at the bottom of Hospital Street. Yep. Like we have, I mean, in that's, the railroad. You I go that way to get home. Put the shit on some train cars take it over to Rico, that would be funneling money into a local business, you know, and then let them send the dirt back over there. And uh, I mean, I I think they might be moving in that direction, and I'm all for that. That's awesome. If we could get another kind of industry going on the James River that... It's a similar model as the tobacco industry was. like you know, And that could increase more demand for people to turn all this land that's all over the place into farmland again, be growing wheat, be growing uh, hops, uh, all the stuff that goes into making beer. And you could be using that shit to make bread, too, because there are a lot of little bakeries around here. Yep. And that would be that would create jobs and like create an economy in Richmond, a an integrated economy. It, it'd be cool if that happened. I don't know if anybody's got that kind of vision around it, but maybe. Yeah.
1: But it, you know, again, it's gonna. This is cynical speak, but it's who's gonna benefit from that in the long run? Dude, room?
0: we gotta get involved in this. Yeah, you know, Bo's gonna run yeah? for mayor next year. Who is Bo? Really? But that's like Joe Walsh running for president. Like he's just yeah.
1: But Bo's actually going to run for mayor. Yeah. He's gonna have like he's gonna file and like I asked about it last weekend. He's like it's gonna be a joke, but mm-hmm. you know he's gonna do it. Just is he
0: just, interested in actually having the job or is he just knowing doing it him?
1: I, I think like he's probably thought well, what happens? You know, because I told him there's a there's a documentary on the mayor mm-hmm. that and um he he ran for the, the position like as a joke cuz he's he's a famous comedian. can mm-hmm. Can't remember what it's called the, the the documentary but it's like but they won. And they won based on common sense kind of like just be cool. Yeah. You know. And then he was like, "Oh wow. crap, I need to make policy now." Yeah. You know.
0: So I was like, "What are you going to do?" I mean, Jesse Ventura win? was a governor in Minnesota, yeah. you know. He's a fucking pro wrestler and I think he should run for city council first, maybe. And he, but that's that's like Parker. Well, where does he's running for where he lives, which is, like, or where he works, or what, what's Beau? the? Mayor? Oh, well, mayor is the whole city, yeah. right, right, <laughs> right. So that would be cool, but the, the thing is, like, I feel like all, and this is happening. Like, people like us, varying degrees of, we've sort of subsisted in Richmond and not spoken up and not done anything other than try to have this separatist counterculture
1: it's like let me just protect you know, my piece of the pie right in my little enclave in this little part of town
0: and know. the old, and like getting those people together and getting them active and i'm not talking about fucking protesting and going to city council and bitching about things i'm talking about getting like-minded individuals together to support like you know just to bolster what it is that you want richmond to be sure. not against the things you don't want richmond to be but say hey this i don't know if you guys know this but we have this community already that we we really like and we're all making a living in it one way or the other and uh we, we band that together and just make sure it isn't just scattered because people don't even know it's there you know i feel like so, they
1: try with music they try to do that with the Route one south conference mm-hmm. remember that were you here for that
0: I remember that yeah we were trying to make a
1: trying to be like a South by Southwest yeah. type deal but it, it didn't work because the music community wasn't as cohesive as it has been in other times and I think they, they're trying to, trying to do that a little bit with uh, the Fall Line Fest
0: you know it doesn't work for me because you have to be at some fucking tent on, Chamber, on Belvedere to purchase a ticket for all of it or none of it at some point you know like you're not allowed to just go to Strange Matter and see one of the shows. Well, you could, like the first is the show that
1: I went to was the Weed Eater show.
0: Right. I wanted to go to that.
1: Yeah, but when you walked up, it was fucking $30 to get in to see Weed Eater headline. It was like, uh, who the fuck? It was Weed Eater, Tombs, uh Sister Sister Hayes opened I think. There was another band. It was like a four or five band bill, but it was like all bands I've seen and or toured with mm-hmm. and like for 30 bucks, yeah. fuck you. You know, they're like, but you could go to any of the other shows that are happening right, tonight. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, fuck I that don't want to go <laughs> see any of the other fucking shows because right, right. I have no interest. Be, and they're like all the way up. the That's the, other the problem
0: home. is that they're trying to fucking, they put all of this money into advertising and marketing materials and tickets and fucking laminates and all of this kind of shit and they need to make their money back so they're they're gonna say hey you know you have to pay for this thing that we decided to do you know and it's that or nothing like and I don't that, that attitude is not, you can't just go from not having anything like that to having you can do that in Austin because people are like they get it, they they trust the curation of the whole thing, and they're like they know they're gonna see good bands. They're willing to pay that stuff. They're gonna go in and check it out. But this is like a brand new thing, so they right. they should have different tiers of it. Like, you know, well I agree with that. It should be
1: the kind of thing where it's like you could do walk up to any of them and pay maybe a slightly more expensive entry fee. Mm-hmm you know like as opposed instead of it being a 10 dollar get in it's 12 bucks or
0: 13 I want to support the band I don't yeah. want to support this big thing you decided to do right. necessarily but if you, you want
1: know. you can buy the bracelet for the other option to go around right. and do that stuff you know there's, Yeah I mean there's got to be a way to do it intelligently and and, and efficiently financially for them you know cuz I know some of the coordinators mm-hmm. and and especially at that at that particular show that I went to I ended up just getting in you know, and um, it was like almost 11 o'clock and it was pretty empty. Yeah. So, you know, and, and the, the coordinator, a couple of corners showed up and were just like, ah, really like nervous because
2: mm-hmm.
1: they weren't going to make their money on, mm-hmm. on the show that night. And it ended up when I I left, right as Meat Eater was starting, because uh, I had to go home, stick out a game the morning to pick up at 6 30 in the morning for fucking soccer
0: mm-hmm.
1: <laughs> uh, how punk rock is, is that? he
0: playing through fox no he plays mm-hmm.
1: with uh, the strikers
0: oh yeah
2: so, seriously. anyway so
1: i mm-hmm. left the show and uh it was like a decently filled strange matter show but it was definitely not you know what they were expecting mm-hmm. and it was the only like heavy show that night
0: yeah you know so. so speaking of heavy shows, I mean we're at two hours now, so oh, this shoot, may be yeah. one that I might shave off some shit from the beginning. Cheater, so we can, cheater pumpkin eater. Yeah. Because <laughs> we were care. talking about futons in the beginning, and maybe nobody needs to hear that. But who knows? Somebody might need to hear that. You know, they may have been about mm. to buy one. Mm. But Alabama Thunder Pussy, how many years did you do that? Um,
1: start to finish, but
0: like, we started in
1: 96 ended 12 and a half years later but the last half of that uh, 12 and a half, you know like for half a year we weren't functioning it was more like no one wanted to say it's, it's done
2: mm-hmm.
1: like i finally just went online, told the label and went online to stonerock.com made a posting saying hey thanks for all your support Over that the years, was when i was august of 2008
0: 2008 that's right when i left there's yeah. some correlation between our uh, lives. You there killed my band. I Burst. fucking <laughs> you didn't realize how important I was. I remember when uh, what was the one that um that what Johnny's first the other Johnny Wells Johnny Wiles Wiles yeah he came from Cleveland is that right Columbus Columbus he was on Fulton Hill yeah oh Fulton Hill okay I you gave me a copy of that like at the bar. And I went home and listened to it yeah, in the middle Patrick of the night. Patrick Henry, right? Yeah. Either that or or McCormick's.
2: Hmm. It's
0: one or the other. I think it might have been Patrick Henry, though. You gave me like a burnt copy of it.
1: Yeah, because we, we did that in, in Churchill. We did it at the, at the tail end of Clay where Mark Bernstein
0: lives. But oh, you did it at his house? Yeah. Oh, wow. Glass hand got moved to
1: that house. Cause, uh,
0: it, it flooded or caught on fire, right? Gaston? Or... No,
1: no, no. Basically, Mark just didn't want to pay the rent anymore. And so Mark
0: was glass hand? Yeah, Mark Miley. Oh, that Mark. Okay. Mark
1: Miley. Bernstein right. was like, "Let's join forces, move the studio up here." So they had a two-inch Studer machine in his living room, mm-hmm. which Church Hill living rooms are not very big. Like right. the entire living. I've room I've been is in taken that house. I
0: worked for Mark Bernstein. Yeah. So you yeah, have a center room when yeah. you
1: walk in the house, you know the stairs go up mm-hmm. and there's the little room or the the front room that front of the house and then there's the middle room. yeah that, the con-
0: Did he have sheetrock on the walls at that point?
1: Uh man that house was just a fucking mess.
0: Yeah, it was down to the studs when I was over there.
1: No, he, there was there was walls and things, you know.
0: <laughs> I put some of them in. I I like started work this is a little detail. like I was between jobs in like 2001, I got fired from working at the museum and I looked in the paper and it said uh carpenters helper wanted rock and roll atmosphere and i said that sounds like me you know i had no idea it was bernstein yeah it was bernstein and Uh he and i the two of us built i had never done carpeting before carpeting carpentry at all before other than a little bit of shit and he and i built an addition on a house over here on like 23rd street or something like doug the footer
1: yeah.
0: did all of it. Like just me and him, we were the entire crew. And one day we hired, we jacked up the whole house and we hired some Mexican guys from down at the Exxon to come and and excavate under the house. And we put a sill, a new sill in there. Like we did crazy stuff. It was he's really the
1: only man that I have like gotten into a like full heated verbal screaming. Fuck you. <laughs> like, cause he's, crazy man mm-hmm. that guy is crazy so
0: yeah he's been around he had a uh, in the house down the street from his, the house he lived in he had this board that he said was like the Woodstock board or something I'm like sure a, he's,
1: he's got a whole lot of stories about a whole lot of stories <laughs> that guy I don't think Mark Bernstein is inherently a bad person he's just like I had bad experiences with him like if you say the name Mark Bernstein to people at Relapse Records they fucking red eyes of hatred come out of them because he he created some serious
0: so you guys allowed him access to a record label no
1: (laughs) no he accessed himself oh wow because we were having issues with relapse and mark decided uh basically what happened was we had a budget right and as it goes with most record labels that were are smaller, they're not going to give you that entire budget in one lump sum. Right. So ops wanted to do it out in increments, mm-hmm. but the increments in the time spans they wanted to do it in weren't working and coinciding with the plans that Mark Bernstein had for his life. Mm. And since it was his house, his studio partnership with Mark, he we were like in the thick of tracking and he shut down the session because he didn't receive a check by friday
2: wow (laughs) you know wow and it's
1: friday so it's the weekend when everyone in the band can work on the record and we were like the momentum was going and it was good you know and then he fucking shuts down the system so (laughs) it it created issues between myself and people that were really good friends with me at the label which i ended up fixing but it boiled down to Mark knew somebody at ASCAP or something and they were having Relapse was having their biannual meeting at the ASCAP headquarters mm-hmm. um, and Mark called his buddy who is a big wig there and anyway Relapse is having their meeting and blah 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 and so the big wig says to Matt Jacobson who runs Relapse at the time it's like, so, tell me about this band that you're not coming up with the money that you promised for with the recording session. Oh, wow. And, 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 and it was just like, imagine just, you know, the, the fucking...
2: Yeah, yeah. Hit the, <laughs> it hit the fan, and, 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 you
1: know. So, they co- so Relapse, of course, first off, they've, they've got to fucking bullshit their way out of that con- that situation. Mm-hmm. And then the, the fucking blowback from that on me personally was horrendous. Yeah. You know, and it was all Mark Bernstein's fault because he fucking thought he was doing me a solid by going after the label who was fucking me.
0: Yeah, right.
1: You know, it was like, no, you're fucking me by going after the label who's working on a time frame works with for it. them. Yeah. You know,
0: I mean, yeah, all obviously, because you didn't get the re- money
1: in time, so you could go buy this compressor that you really
0: Right. Right,
1: you know, so you could show off to your fucking friends in Nashville about how you. Yeah, got there the were ghost all thing. of
0: these fucking stories about Rodney Crowell and like all of this shit he was constantly talking about. And I told him like, yeah, man, I know. I mean, I, mean, I had a job at a record label in New York, and I never fucking bragged about that because I was like. Really ashamed of how I got fired from working at Matador and all of this kind of stuff. I never—that was not supposed to be some selling point for me being a carpenter's assistant, a laborer for him. You know, it's just conversation was happening while I was like digging Yeah, but digging it came out ditch, your mouth and you were like, well, you know? wait a
1: minute, no." Well, I had no idea.
0: So the motherfucker <laughs> called Matador and was like asking him all these goddamn questions about me and shit. You know, and like I didn't put that on a resume. I didn't put that as a reference. I never, you know, I'm here. To me, this is a job that you don't doesn't require you know any of that kind of stuff but he called up there and did all this investigation and found out all these things about how what a drunk i was and a drug addict and like i would you know didn't wasn't showing up for work and all these kinds of things and confronted me about it you know because i think i guess he'd gotten the idea that i had some connections and that Going forward from this construction thing we were going to do, we were gonna be getting into the music business together somehow. <laughs> <laughs> you know? and like I'd never mm. even <laughs> suddenly I was defending myself against this, you know, these allegations. And like, and like, Man, I'm just he's just like, You really pissed you. those people off up there in New York. And, yeah. Strange. Just not anything you would you would you know, predict or forecast happening He's on his own, you know.
1: He's definitely in his own world.
0: So you you made Fulton Hill and Churchill. Huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I liked that record a lot though, and I really the rock and roll won't let me go because I won't let it thing was, right. was that, what's that song called? R-R-C-C. Rock and roll R-R-C-C. guy. Yeah, yeah rock and roll. Rock and roll,
1: guy. roll Christ complex.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that was good stuff. So why did it that that just ran its course that band or is it?
1: Uh, pretty much. Um, I'm sure there's many different things that contributed to it, but essentially, you know, we split with Johnny Throckmorton on purpose. Johnny Wiles split with us on drugs.
2: Mm-hmm. And then
1: we got Kyle Thomas who almost immediately made his motivations for in the band pretty clear to me, um, which didn't line up with why I was doing this band from the get go, right? Which basically boiled down to money. Um, oh, hang on a
0: second, oh, Shit, let me let me pause this. Yep. Probably. Yeah, yeah. So we had interrupted for a second. I I agree with you there. And now, we're, what were we talking about before? Yes,
1: why the band ended. Oh yeah. ATP, and I was wrapping up with Kyle Thomas. Basically, I think he thought that ATP was a bigger band than we were, and he thought that we were gonna. He was going to be in the limelight again because his previous bands that he'd been in, Floodgate and Exhorter, uh, he'd done some big tours, you know. And the first real tour that we did was opening for Obituary,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, which was really fucking fun, but made us, we just basically, we broke even. We actually, we, we broke even with everything except we had a merch debt and we went to Europe so there really wasn't any money, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I'm not gonna get into specifics, but he, he 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 got some money and the rest of us didn't and and I just knew that he was gonna quit. So he quit and we were thrown back in that situation, we're singerless again, and it's like mm-hmm. we're becoming a fucking parody of ourselves. Right. So we have a new singer every fucking album, mm-hmm. it seems you know, three albums in a row is a different singer. Even though Throckmorton was on four and it was just yeah. you know and I just think it knocked the wind out of everyone's sails. Mm-hmm. And I, at that point, I was doing *Parasitic*, you know, playing drums in a crust punk band. And we were going on tour, our first tour, driving into Mexico. So I was like, "I'll be back in two weeks, guys. Let's everyone think about this, and we'll figure out a gameplay when I get back." And, uh, you know, talked amongst yourselves to bring the Linda Richmond, uh, thing back full circle in the conversation. But, uh, Linda Richmond,
0: Mike Myers character. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: When it came back, no one talked (laughs) to each other. No one really cared. And it went back and forth for like almost six months of like.
0: And was Bill's. Bill wasn't. No, he was gone. At that
1: point, I mean, at that point, the band was me, Brian Cox, Ryan Lake, and Mikey Bryant. Oh, yeah. And, um,
0: like Brian
1: you know we had options I thought I was like everything from like of course finding a new singer to uh, me and Ryan taking up vocal duties because we had an album written Mm -hmm. and we had demoed it just musically so all we needed to do was figure out the vocals and I was just you know I I fucking decided fuck it you know I don't want to do this anymore and then Brian pulled some Jedi mind trick on me and thought well maybe we could just do the last record, you know, if Relapse will do it, but we're not going to tour on it, we'll have Kyle sing on it, and just, you know, that'll be it. And I was like, oh, I'll ask Relapse, said they would do it. But then one thing led to another, and I was just like, you know what, fuck this, because I couldn't get anyone to agree on anything, and no one was communicating. A couple months would go by again, and I just one day woke up, and was like, you know what, screw this, nobody really fucking cares anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, yeah. I, mean, I care, but I'm not getting that same sort of, feeling so i just went online i didn't even call the band members i just went online i emailed the label said we're done this is why they're like do you want us to post any big announcement i was like no no i'll make an announcement on stonerock.com that's kind of our demographic
0: isn't you know? that weird to you i mean not yeah. that like well
1: and the thing is it was like none of the nobody in atp called me none of none of them and they're all online yeah nobody said shit like i i announced to the world this band that especially me and Brian have been doing for 12 and a half years. Yeah, we're done. And he never fucking called. And maybe it was just anger mm-hmm. or
0: you, you haven't know, spoken to him. Or since
1: then? I, I tend to think that he was just pissed that he didn't do it first,
2: <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: you know, because I, I heard from them. I did that. And then I left town with, the, with a plan. My plan was I'm going to go, I'm going to drive municipal waste on this tour that they're doing, come back with the money to buy out the guys from the van. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So, because that was the last little kind of asset left hanging mm-hmm. in the air. It was in my name, mm-hmm. insurance, and everything. And I wanted the van, so I did that. I bought everybody out after I got back, and then that was that was it. So. Isn't that? Uh,
0: I don't know. I mean, this is maybe not like I mean that. Um, Sonarock.com is the thing that's sticking in my yeah. craw about this that. Well, it's not sticking to my crawl, but, like, isn't it weird that, like, you were in a veil and, like, that's this completely different world in most people's thinking. And then you were in this band for so many years that is, like, you know, that's that's the demographic is stonerock.com. Yeah. And anybody who – would they would think of, like, stonerock as having nothing to do with where – a veil came from, right. but there's a shitload of people that w- did have a relationship with that kind of thing that I are in. Said that I've, like, I've
1: said this, and uh, there's actually, I, I did a a third solo album that was released by myself last year. Release meaning I only have burned copies because uh-huh. nobody wants to put it out because they don't mm-hmm. like it. But there's a song on there called Stoner Rock is where punks go to retire. Yeah. <laughs> and it's about basically, the song is about kind of like trying to smack these apathetic old punk rockers into giving a shit again. Yeah. You know, because it's like, I noticed that when I started really just saying and I walked away from a veil and started doing ATP full time, I was running into people that I knew from my mm-hmm. time with a veil
2: mm-hmm.
1: who was like, yeah, man, you know, I just want to play rock and roll now, you know, for whatever reason, you know, for some people it was just what they liked. Right. For some people, they just didn't want to deal with the politics. And right. Issues anymore. Right. But it was just running into all these people, and I was like, "Wow, this is stone of rock, man. All punks."
0: Basically. Well, the real irony of this to me is like that you know, punk as it originally came about, like Dead Boys and all that kind of stuff, was like they didn't want to be Foreigner in Boston and all this '70s right. rock. Right. You know, they wanted to get back to the basics of rock and roll, like hot rod rock and roll, '50s, '60s kind of stuff. And when people get tired of how uptight. Or controlled or fascist, the you know so-called punk rock has gotten. They turn to 70s rock, <laughs> like, like yeah, That's right, of, you know. I mean, and, and unironically listening to Foreigner, you know, and Dirty White Boy. And I've like, always been
1: a proponent of Foreigner. I've always loved Foreigner. I yeah. grew up with Foreigner, so you'll never hear me every time. Right. Him. And
0: I, right, you know, I always consistently like that kind of shit, too. And it's like my childhood music dead stuff, rock, too. Man. But when you watch it, at like, end of the century, you yeah. know, or something like that, they're like, we don't want to be fucking Foreigner or Boston or yeah. whatever, you know, and so. You know, at a certain age and and whatever, the trajectory of, like, finding your way and fitting in or whatever, everybody's following that. And that becomes too oppressive, you know. And the freedom is in that music that was the big stadium rock of that time, you know. But, like, I don't know. It... There's gotta I don't know whatever it's cool like we're coming in, <laughs> in this fucking shit I've had I've just
1: had, just, had... just before warned the '90s revival is getting ready to happen
0: yeah what do you think that means
1: I think that means we're going to be, have a lot of crappy grunge resurgence
0: and what is grunge like you know Mud Honey you know I mean because that's already been the sub pop stuff that they're putting out now as like piss jeans have you heard that band oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know that sounds exactly like yeah. the stuff they were putting out in the early 90s
1: I just mean in, mm-hmm. in mainstream culture Yeah. like you know that we we've done the 80s thing that's on its teeter like we're we're basically right around the Paula Abdul era of 80s revival
0: Yeah because the girls wearing those high jeans that like the 90s yeah the, the yeah.
1: horrible mm-hmm. part of the 80s you know like that's that's happening right now but That's
0: what, uh, always what it you're going to mine interestingly enough is the worst of the, that era like the 70s when the 70s came back what everybody wanted to wear was the worst 70s stuff like the disco still wears punk shit yeah Bell it's still Boys. wearing it and uh, <laughs> right and um, I don't know I think it's like more and more I like to play with all of that kind of stuff and I think I actually think that, that this as this stuff and maybe it's just our age or whatever but i think it's happening culturally too is it since the 90s we've realized there is no linear trajectory mm. for fashion and and culture you know but that was the conceit for a long time that since like the i don't know maybe the 40s or something that we're going forward right. something's Improving getting better upon, cooler yeah. you know so when you and i come of age we think everything that's gone before us is you know it's like the prehistoric version, and we're building the modern version and the advanced version but more more and more there aren't those new things there are people like looking for that old stuff. It's crazy to me to see like a fourteen year old kid with a sleep t shirt on you know walking down the street, and they're they're really mining that stuff yeah. as though it were classic you know. Like Zeppelin kind of stuff, and those guys were doing that to bring back the you know Black Sabbath and you know 70s rock and roll in the 90s. So I think these, the idea that fashion means something, you know, and that these cultural movements are related to clothing and music and all of that kind of stuff means something significant is going away. As like you've got to adhere to it, and more and more, it's going to like how can we connect all of these really like you know, people can connect online and it's less about what you're wearing. It's about like, oh no, actually we have this in common. We wouldn't have thought we had this in common if we saw each other on the street, but mm-hmm. we, you know, those of us who look like you and look like me, we're into a lot more of the same shit than anybody would have thought before. But we get to find that out by connecting to the internet. And more and more we're getting connected, and I think we're going to find we're going to enjoy our art and our pop culture and our cult and our music and all of that stuff. But we're gonna start getting on something more important. You oh, know,
1: that I would like to think that you're correct in that.
0: Let's we'll see. I yeah.
1: still say nineties re- revival's coming, watch out. It's
0: here. <laughs> it's already here. And it doesn't it doesn't bother me so much. I mean I was watching that Dave Grohl Sonic Highways thing. I Have you seen, seen any that, of that? No. Awesome documentary. I saw like, I
1: had the one about the studio.
0: Yeah, the Steve Albini studio. That's really cool to learn about him and to find out what kind of guy he was is, and and have Rick Nielsen sitting there too for cheap trick, mm-hmm. and but w- the music that they're doing is like the songs that Foo Fighters have written in the course of making this so far are just plain horrible, like really 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 bad.
1: I think Grohl is 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 he's in a place in his life right now where he's kind of become the enemy and he doesn't realize it yet mm-hmm. he will realize it and he'll do something cool again but like right now he's too much in the inertia of the you know the, you know, the i the, think the dave Grohl foo fighters yeah. love. they're gonna save rock and roll thing you know they're becoming you too
0: he took it too you know? right they are you're that's a good analogy they i think it was really interesting the sound city documentary and to that's see him I'm talking about that's you are okay because you know the first episode of Sonic Highways is in Chicago, and they they record a song at Steve Albini's studio, and they talk about you know doing in utero, and and Steve Albini's talking about how he sees himself as an engineer, and he's like, I just do your record, I don't want points, I I've provided a service when I was there right. recording the record, it's yours after that, I don't goodbye, you know, and all of that stuff's really cool, but the song they they're writing a song in like each of these cities and recording it in each of these cities. Uh, and, yeah,
1: yeah, I've heard about this. Too. And
0: so they've done. Chicago and DC so far, and I have HBO. If you want to watch this shit at some point, but I really like know. you do have it. Okay, I'm sorry for assuming that you didn't have HBO. It's <laughs> very, very rude of me. But um, the music, the songs they play at the end of these episodes are terrible. But the stuff he's saying about these scenes in the, you know, Chicago and DC and all that is really cool. Like it's very interesting. Are, are
1: they creating songs inspired by
0: the city, the music
1: scenes yeah. of that city? Yeah. So, for instance, like we were saying, cheap trick. They're like, oh yeah. So we're gonna do something like this.
0: No, or I mean it- they he they talk like Dave, okay. So Dave Grohl's musical thing started when he went to visit his cousin who in in Chicago um, who was in a punk band and she was 12. And I forget what they were called, but he went to see that and he fucking loved it. And then he went back and found whatever was the analog in D.C. and he got into that. So there's a little bit of talking about her band and what the punk scene was like there with Naked Ray Gun and that and then it's talking about Big Black and, and Steve Albini and all of that and David Yow's in there and stuff and it's also talking about the blues thing and how the blues thing got started there so he's saying the place and time and all of this goes a lot into what we do what we sound like how we write and so he's writing these songs on the spot like he's in Steve Albini's studio writing the lyrics in a notebook and then and they've got some riffs figured out and shit and like Butch Vig's there too I don't know why Steve Albini would let Butch Vig and his studio but um
1: it seems to me then like, they do
0: the song and it's yeah
1: it, but more than likely you I, you know more like you try and write something on the spot like that but like it's gonna come out as at, at best i would think it would come out as derivative
0: maybe he's doing what i was declaring at the beginning of this like, hey, thing is do it, this
1: yeah look yeah, at that not I, awesome right oh, it's or
0: it's not awesome but i'm gonna yeah. do it and so here it is. This is warts and all, the entire process, and this is what I produce when I do that. And he's just totally laying it. Like, he's like, I've already proven that I can do this other shit where true, I, true. you know, so here's what happens when I just try to, you know, do it on the spot. So far, not so good. Like, the riff that's at the heart <laughs> of this song is the uh, Holy Diver. You know, dun, diga, dun, diga, dun, dun, dun. like they break into this jam around that riff. Is was really. And I don't think they mean it to be an homage or anything. It's just they're
1: like, oh, that sounds just, great. That sounds yeah, cool. let rock man, that. Man, you know, it just sounds really familiar for some reason. <laughs> like I feel at home with this riff.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I like I like all of that shit. Obviously, that's the way I talk. You know, like I I got I I like the romance and and the history and the, all of that stuff that's in the air about music. You know, that's like more of what it's about to me than um, my creative output. Did you it's go like, on
1: the the W I R R? Music history tour that they did around no. the fan around uh-uh. the BC uh-uh.
0: campus. I didn't know about that.
1: About a month ago, right before they did uh, their their last fun drive, they had a thing where you could like Bobby Gorman was involved with it, and they walked around that area,
0: showed all the places where buildings the used to about be, music and history and <laughs> shit. Yeah. yeah, that's cool. So. Yeah. Well, um, I think we should wrap this up. I mean, it's, we're, yeah, we can go on right. for we're forever. We will have to do it again or something. You know? So you're parasitic is what you're doing now.
1: Yeah.
0: And yep. that's crusty punk kind of stuff?
1: More or less. I mean, it's like equal parts thrash and crust punk and metal. I mean, I don't... It's not... When you think crust punk, you generally think just D-beat.
0: You but know what I'm like. thinking now? Is that there are some people who are in this town right now from that that are seriously like fucking <laughs> asshole. <laughs> like.
1: Hating on... <laughs>
0: well, no, they're, but like my friend, my friend, Kathy's husband's got a truck over in Scott's edition and two guys stole it and stripped it to buy dope. And they'd been living in some hobo camp over there and they caught it on videotape and they ended up catching the guys that did it. One of them's got a tattoo on his face. I mean, they both have tattoos all over their face, like total, you know, came in on the rails Kind of shit. Uh, I mean, and they stripped, they took all the, this guy, this guy's like a dude that makes 30000 a year as a construction dude. They took all his shit. Like, and they took his truck and they took everything off his truck and then they ran it off a, down a um, utility access road behind a railroad track. And, you know, he was happy. They His wife, Kathy's a lawyer who works in, you know, ex punk rock, by the way, from Chapel Hill or whatever. She's like, fuck that. I'm going to figure out. So his punk rock lawyer against crust punks, she figured out where they were, tracked them down, like got APBs, all this kind of shit. They got, they caught them, you know, they put them in jail. They're in there like detoxing off dope. And, uh, somebody came by the other night that he got his truck back. He fixed it all up. They still parked in Scott's edition. Some dude came by in a truck and busted out the windshield with a baseball bat. And they caught him on the videotape again, too. And it's another one of those f- dude's friends. Yeah, who's, like,
1: so like, fuck that, yeah,
0: man. Fuck, fuck you fuck, for enforcing the law, Yeah,
1: fuck you for putting my junkie friend in jail for doing something fucked up, man. Fuck you. <laughs> All right, well, let me make a distinction here real quick. <laughs> I, I would not call those dudes crusty punks. I would call them fucking gutter scumbags, like mm-hmm. gutter punks or scum punks, you know, scum fucks is what yeah. call them. You know, because they're basically in it just to fucking waste away. Yeah. It has nothing to do with
0: politics or anything politics like that.
1: Politics or music or anything. I mean, I don't know. I,
0: Yet they end up ar- around people who are serious about s- good shit, you know, like the squats in New well, York. Because they may and like then, you know? the music. Yeah. They
1: may like the music, you know. Um, and there's a certain uh, freedom to the fringe elements of that. You know, squatting community right. and stuff. But.
0: It's that freedom where you still are totally dependent upon people who are working and doing shit. And
1: Well, you're totally dependent on junk if you're a fucking junkie.
0: Yes, there is that so, aspect, yeah. too. So, anyway. All right, we'll, all right, man, cool. Thank you for coming over. Yep, that no was problem. cool. There you go. Another long one. Two hours and some change. I hope you made it through all of that. Um... um all I got. Um, you know what? We're I'm thinking about. I'm talking to somebody about doing something recommended by a friend of mine, where we uh, take these podcasts and we cut them down and maybe put them on the radio. First, you got to find somebody who want to put them on the radio. Maybe RIR. First, going to try cutting them down. Tantric Interruptus is the name that somebody suggested, I could say who, Matt Zoller, uh, fundraiser, W-R-I-R, he's like, why don't you edit those down to a half hour or something, and call them, Patrick, interrupt us, I like that, so I've suggested to somebody that they do it, I don't know if I feel like it myself, I like editing very much, as you can tell, so I don't know, we'll see about that, and uh, coming up Next time, I have the Tantric Roundtable. Kyle Harris, Chip Cosby, and Ryan Muldoon, and me sitting around the table after eating lasagna and talking about spirituality, philosophy, different reads and different takes on uh, the whole class of world religions, tending, I guess, to focus on all of our special areas of interest, which... Tend to be Eastern um, and all that, so I, I don't know. It's, it's inter- I enjoyed it a whole lot hanging out with those guys and talking. And um, I don't know what it's going to sound like. I'm try to fix that. I haven't listened to it again since we did it. And then I got Kelly Queener, Peace Beast, also a painter. Um, she's coming in here, coming by the studio next Tuesday, and uh, yeah, be on the lookout for that and. As always, you guys, you can be cool. Go by the website and hook me up. Make make a payment. Make a donation if you're listening to this a lot. You know, the gesture of five, ten dollars, twenty dollars, fifty dollars. Greatly appreciated. Donna, Donna, it is a, a another one of these sort of Hindu things that I like to play around with, which is the principle of giving. Uh, it has rewards kind of like karma, but better. Much better. All around. Namaste.